Excerpt from A Genealogical Historical Visitation of Andover, Massachusetts, in the year 1863, by Alfred Poor, M.D. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon a genealogical historical visitation of andover massachusetts in the year eighteen sixty three by alfred poor m d alfred poor m d eighteen eighteen to nineteen o seven author of a memoir and genealogy of john poor and the historical and genealogical researches and recorder of passing events of merrimack valley was in the habit of making house-to-house -house journeys in various Essex County towns in search of genealogical information and family lore. On several occasions, more extended trips were made through Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and even into Canada, in search of material relating to those families who had removed from Essex County and settled in the northern part of New England. He would walk from town to town, examining and copying from the town and church records, gravestones, family Bibles, and private memoranda, and making extended inquiries into unwritten family history covering its genealogy and immigration. His notebooks, kept during these various visitations, are now preserved by the Essex Institute. Almost the first extended visitation undertaken by Dr. Poor was an examination of the town of Andover, Massachusetts, occupying the larger part of the summer of 1863, and it is believed that much of the information then gathered, and here published, is not preserved in any other form. Started from home in West Haverhill at 9 a.m. on May 5, 1863, passing through Salem, New Hampshire, Methuen, and Lawrence, and arrived at w f draper's about two p m called on john h manning who says that wilson flagg who came from beverly resided in andover a few years and now probably resides in cambridge is interested in history and is a writer for periodicals dr sanborn's son is interested in entomology mr manning says that his grandfather thomas manning shoemaker came from Bellerica to Andover, when he was about 21 years old. He purchased the homestead where he now resides, probably about the time he was married, of Joseph Ballard and his widowed mother. Timothy, who owned the mills, from whom the village derived its name, was brother to Joseph Ballard. Thomas Manning's wife was Mehitable Kidder, and probably all of the children were born on the farm some of the children were born in a house which stood about forty rods west of the present house a part of this old house was moved to form the l of this house but in eighteen forty two it was taken away and a new l built the house was built in seventeen fifty eight and the barn which was raised up about eighteen fifty to fifty one was probably built at the same time the balm of gilead trees in front of the house were set out about eighteen thirty three and the elm tree on the opposite side of the street and which contains about five cords was brought there on mr ballard's shoulders and set out the day he was twenty-one years old his shoemaker's shop which was once a blacksmith's shop stood just below the old house but it was torn down before mr manning can remember 
Deacon Gould's wife is related to the Ballards. Nathaniel Whittier's wife, Summer Street, is a descendant of the Mannings. Thomas Manning's children were Thomas, father of John H., Chloe married a Holly, and her son William edited a newspaper in New Hampshire. Hannah married a Burt and lived near Haggett's Pond, William Burt being chaplain of the state almshouse. Thomas Manning, the father of John H., and probably the youngest of the children, married first Sarah, daughter of Joseph and Anna Blank of North Reading, and settled on this homestead, where he always lived. She was the mother of all his children, and died in 1839, aged about 55 years, and was buried in the Old South graveyard. He married second, Adeline A., daughter of Asa Blank, who still resides at the homestead. In his younger days, Thomas Manning was a shoemaker, but many years before he died in 1849, he was a farmer. The farm consisted of 48 acres, and he owned 80 acres more. The family now own about 20 acres near Pomp's Pond. The children of Thomas Manning Jr. were 1. Edward Augustus, farmer, now of Manchester, Iowa, who formerly owned the place where Mr. Church now resides on Phillips Street. He was overseer of repairs on the Boston and Maine Railroad from very soon after the road was built until he removed to Iowa, first from Andover Depot to Wilmington, and when the double track was built, he had a section from the depot to Ballardvale. He married Hannah Merrill of Derry, New Hampshire, and has four children living, three daughters and one son, the oldest having died in March 1863, and a daughter in 1840. His son Augustus L., about 21 years old, is in the 12th or 13th Iowa Regiment, and was taken prisoner at Pittsburgh Landing, held eight months, suffered very much, and was nearly all the time at Macon, Georgia. 2. Sarah A. died 1840, unmarried. 3. Mary K. died young. 4. Joseph M. died young. 5. Mary Anginette, who married Henry F. Barnard and died 1850, leaving two children. 6. John Hart, born February 8, 1824, married Lois Ann, daughter of Amos and Myra Nichols Batchelder, who was born North Reading, March 11, 1832. Her father was son of Simeon and Betsy Batchelder, and her mother was daughter of Mrs. Lois Nichols. Children, all born at the homestead, A. Mary Alton, born October 31, 1850, B. John Hart, Jr., born February 3, 1858, C. Martha, born April 23, 1860, D. Frederick Wilbur, born June 26, 1862. John H. Manning lived in Nahant in 1851-2, in the South in the winters of 1859-60, and, and in Magnolia, St. John's River, Florida, for his health in 1860-61. 7. Rebecca Jane, born March 23, 1827, married Henry F. Barnard, her deceased sister's husband. Two other families have occupied this house. Horace Lewis, who came from New Hampshire, perhaps New Boston, lived in the Abiel Abbott place a while, then moved here and occupied a part of the house from April 1852 to April 1854, and John W. Haley, a member of the middle class at the seminary, who occupied it in November 1861, 
but later moved into one part of the house in which Fitzwilliam Rogers now resides. Called on Asa A. Abbott, who has been one of the select men often, and found him in his field south of his house, which land extends about eighty rods to where Dr. Whitney of Charlestown, formerly of Haverhill, now owns. The latter was a west lot and was given to Holt. Probably Benjamin West had no children. One Allen once owned the land about three-quarters of a mile southwest of A. Abbott's, now owned by his brother Sylvester and Nathan B. Abbott, and it was here that Mr. Abbott's great-great-grandfather, Ephraim Abbott, settled. The plain, before reaching Ballardville, was called Preston's Plain as long ago as 1718, perhaps from one John Preston who once lived there. Isaac Wilson, who resides near the line between Andover and North Andover, has the proprietor's records, he being the clerk. John Russ probably resided where Peter Smith now resides. Mr. Abbott says that beginning at the turnpike where Moses Abbott now resides, the land formerly was owned by the Chandlers until about 1806. John Chandler, son of David, had left the place before 1807, because that year the turnpike was built and the workmen lived there. John Chandler was a shoemaker, and probably mortgaged his place to Jonathan Swift the tanner, who resided where the present Jonathan Swift now lives. Moses Abbott, son of Moses and grandson of Barachias, came into possession of the place after the Moses first referred to was born. On May 6th, called on Captain Joshua Ballard, who says his grandfather, Deacon Hezekiah Ballard was son of Hezekiah and a descendant of William, who came to this town from Saugus. Deacon Hezekiah married Lydia Chandler and lived where Mr. Manning now resides. Their children were one Lydia, born July 30, 1742, married Dane Holt, settled at Prospect Hill, had three children, and died November 1813. Two Rebecca born May 16, 1744, married Deacon Zebediah Abbott, and died 1821 in West Andover, where Benjamin Boynton now resides. Children, A. Deacon Zebediah, B. Anna, married Christopher Osgood, settled in Pembroke, New Hampshire, C. Herman, 3. Lois, born July 19, 1746, married Joshua Phelps, died December 26, 1836, settled in West Andover, about a mile and a half from the West Andover Church, on the road to Lowell. Children, A. Joshua, B. Mrs. Blunt, C. Mrs. Noah Abbott. 4. Hannah, born December 6, 1748, married first Obadiah Foster, second Captain Joshua Chandler, and died December 1838. With her first husband, she lived where Nathan Abbott, second, now lives. 5. Mary, born February 27, 1751, married Henry Phelps, another son of Samuel Phelps, settled where her sons Henry and Chandler Phelps now reside in West Andover, and died 1835. 6. Joshua, born June 27, 1753, died 1753, choked to death by a piece of corn. 7. Sarah, born January 27, 1756, married Deacon Nathan Abbott, 
settled in Scotland District, where Nathan B. Abbott now resides, and died 1825. 8. Dorcas. Born October 16, 1757. Died unmarried. 9. Lucy. Born April 4, 1760. Married Nathan Chandler of West Andover. Removed to Concord, New Hampshire, and died June 8, 1827. 10. Hezekiah. Born July 18, 1762. Married Mary, daughter of Zebediah and Deborah Blanchard Chandler of West Andover, who died March 16, 1834. He died October 4, 1847. Hezekiah Ballard settled on the farm which is now owned by William Allen, the last house before reaching the Wilmington line the land having been purchased from Joshua Wardell and wife Mary in 1771 by Deacon Hezekiah Ballard. It was owned previously by Joseph Foster, Jr. Here, Deacon Ballard kept a public house a few years during the Revolution. The barn on the old place, which was taken down about 1812, was raised when Hezekiah Ballard was 21 years old, that is, in 1783 and the present barn was built in 1839. The present house was built on the Job Foster place, which Captain Ballard bought in 1834. The old house was on the opposite side of the road toward Boston, about 30 rods. About half of this farm was purchased of the town by Captain Ballard's ancestors, besides about 70 acres on the Wilmington side. His father bought of the town on the eastern side of John's Hill, so called because an Irishman, John Dunlap, lived in the angle made by the Boston Road and that leading by Rattlesnake Hill. Caesar Dull afterwards lived there. Captain Ballard owned at one time about 300 acres, but retains about 50. He sold about 75 acres to William Allen, April 1, 1852, Mr. Allen having hired it five years previous to buying. Others who lived in any part of the old house where the tavern was kept were widow Susanna Marshall, whose sons, Jacob and James, died in Andover, and whose daughter, Abigail, was there a while. Tabitha and Hannah Holt kept house there 1800 to 1810. They were spinners and had a brother, Michael Holt, who lived in North Andover. Isaac Jones, a native of Wilmington, was there about two years, and left in the autumn of 1810, to go to Stoddard, New Hampshire. He soon after died, and his family went west. Nathaniel Dunkley, an old revolutionary soldier, lived in the next house about 1808. The children of Hezekiah and Mary Ballard were 1. Joshua, born January 3, 1785, married 1810, observed their golden wedding, November 13, 1860. Phoebe, daughter of Jonathan and Dorcas Abbott Abbott, and granddaughter Jonathan and Martha Lovejoy Abbott. Her mother was daughter of Stephen and Mary Abbott Abbott, born January 17, 1788, where Stephen D. Abbott lives. The house stood near his residence and was taken down about 1830. Joshua lived on the homestead of his father and grandfather until May 1, 1848, when he bought of Merrill Pettengill a two-acre farm, corner of the Turnpike and Punchard Avenue. Pettengill built the house, but upon removing to Boston or Melrose, he rented it to different persons. Mr. Ballard made some additions. 
and on August 27, 1851, the year when several fires occurred in Andover, it was partially destroyed. In about eleven weeks it was repaired and made into its present shape. Children A. Phoebe Abbott, born August 22, 1811, married Herman Phelps Chandler, cousin to her father. B. Joshua, born January 28, 1813, married May 1840, Mehitable, daughter of Jonathan and Betsy Batchelder, Abbott of Temple, New Hampshire, resides in Southbridge, Massachusetts, agent of the Hamilton Woolen Company of Boston since 1846, but previously agent for the Amiskeague Company. No children. C. Stephen, born September 9, 1815, married first December 24, 1830 to Sarah Ballard, daughter of Abiel and Sarah Abbott Russell, who died October 1851, married second in Lowell, Abby Dodge, born Amherst, resides in Williamsburg, New Hampshire, making belts for machinery. For eleven years after his brother left Amaskeag Mills, he was agent, removing in the autumn of 1858. D. Edward, born June 26, 1819, lives at home, unmarried. E. Gayton, born July 8, 1821, married Sybil Brown Abbott, sister to Joshua's wife, settled in Hookset, New Hampshire, where he remained about three years and went to Southbridge about 1849. He, with his brother Joshua and Adolphus Merriam, own a small willow mill, the firm being Merriam and Ballard. Children Sybil Eliza, Mary Alma, and Daniel all died young. Sarah Eliza, born August 1852, Arthur Gayton, born 1854, F. William, born May 15, 1826, G. Mary, born March 24, 1828, unmarried. Notes, Hezekiah, next to Captain Joshua, died with a throat distemper, aged 11 years. Mary died, aged about 14 years. Hannah died at the age of 45 years. Sarah and Dorcas died young, Hezekiah married Susan Brown, and died December 21, 1837, aged 41 years, of falling from a wagon in Reading where he resided. Nathan died young. Joseph Ballard, who married Hannah, daughter of Colonel George Abbott, and sold to Manning, was probably cousin to Deacon Hezekiah. Timothy Ballard, who owned the mills at Ballard Vale Village, was not a brother to Deacon Hezekiah. He married Mary, daughter of William and Hannah Abbott, and had no children, but they adopted her niece, Mary B., daughter of Captain Joseph and Sarah Foster Brown, who is second wife of Deacon Abraham Jones Gould. Old Nehemiah Abbott married Hannah Ballard, whose sister Betty was a blind maiden lady. She owned the mills with Timothy Ballard. Nehemiah Abbott had one son who was a physician. The former sold his interest in the mills to Timothy. On the brook that runs from Foster's Pond to the river, there was a small grist mill owned by William Goldsmith, and afterwards by his son Jeremiah. But no grinding has been done there since about 1800. There was a winter mill on the road by Rattlesnake Hill. The Ballardville Company owned the water privilege, which they bought some years ago. Called again on Asa A. Abbott on May 6th. General Washington took breakfast in the house where Locke resides 
near Valpies, which was occupied as a tavern by Deacon Isaac Abbott, and when the general left town, he went down Phillips Street on toward Billerica. Phillips lived in Moses Abbott's house when he was building the mansion house. Gardner Abbott, the blacksmith, resided in Moses Abbott's house. He died in North Andover. Captain Joseph Gleason lived there next, and he went to West Reading, Wood End, where he died. Mr. Vinyl, one of the carpenters on the seminary buildings, also lived there. David I.C. Hidden resides on the farm that was probably originally owned by the Chandlers. The first of that name, whom Mr. Asa A. Abbott can recollect, was Philemon Chandler, who owned the homestead of about thirty acres, besides a larger tract of meadow and woodland, near Chandler's Bridge Pasture, where the Stone Academy stands. Roger Brook Pasture, the brook named for an old Indian by the name of Roger. Next, William, son of Philemon Chandler, owned the place, and William's son Isaac next owned it. The latter died about 1835, and his daughter Abigail resides there now. David Hidden, who came up with William Bartlett in his chase with his tools when they built the seminary buildings, concluded to settle here, and married Mary, daughter of Isaac Chandler. He died on the place, and D.I.C. Hidden is his son. The widow of Reverend Mr. Barnard of Salem occupied a part of the house before old Mr. Hidden was married. Reverend Mr. Mills and a Mr. Avery lived here at different times. Timothy Abbott owned the homestead of about 44 acres, mostly on the south side of the street, although there was some land near Deer's Jump, Foster's Pond, and Falls Woods in the southern part of the town. Preston's Plain, Pine Swamp, east of Seminary Hill, all of which has been divided among his descendants. Asa A. and Sylvester Abbott own and occupy the homestead of 155 acres, and since their barn, which stood on the opposite side of the street, was burned on June 21, 1855, each has built a barn of uniform design. In the old barn was stored a large collection of old furniture, as well as very old papers and books taken from the old house, all of which were burned. The present house was built on the site of the old one that stood about eighty or ninety years, having been built by Asa Abbott of the fourth generation from George the emigrant, when Timothy was nine years old, about 1754. The original house stood on the opposite side of the street, about six rods southwest. The latter part of Timothy's life was spent with his brother William in a house which stood about fifty feet from where Deacon Albert Abbott's house stands. None but Abbott families have ever occupied the place of Asa A. and Sylvester Abbott. Mr. Manning's house is next. There were several houses in the rear of Manning's, one of which a Mr. Stone occupied not far from Stewart's house. It is said that Stone cut his wife's throat. One Stephen Abbott once lived near Professor Phelps's house. Joseph Ballard's father built a barn 78 by 30 feet, and Asa Abbott built one 60 by 30 feet. Hugh Wilson owns on the northerly side of the street, which was formerly owned by David Blunt, and perhaps before by his ancestor. Blunt left only one child, a daughter, Mary P., who married Peter Shedd from Tewkesbury. They settled on the place and continued there until they went to Milford, New Hampshire, about 1837. 
five children were born to them before they left and about seven since all of whom were living except two who were killed recently in the army peter shedd sold the place to andrew b stimson who went to ballardville and died there the latter was a riding master and at one time was connected with ordway's circus ordway and stimson of new york afterwards one of the factory company owned the place and it was occupied by w c macdonald now donald who is the ink manufacturer at fry village crookshanks and turnbull bought the place and the latter occupied it a while joseph j pearson and william marland have lived there warren mason a returned soldier last occupied the house owned by mr ellis before him william simpson who now resides on the street back of the seminary rev alonzo t deming a student in the seminary occupied it a while he now resides in bridgewater vermont having left here in eighteen fifty nine john hackett built the house about eighteen forty nine and lived there then samuel evans who came from and went back to north andover and whose wife is a daughter of eben fish of north andover william hackett brother to john built his house west of john's about eighteen fifty nine the hackett's bought the land of marland and it was formerly a part of the blunt place there was formerly a house which probably stood about fifty rods south of the street before the philemon chandler place is reached this philemon was probably son of philemon of the third generation who owned the hidden place and whose wife was the widow of job foster who lived near the allen place he had children by a former wife jabez hayward came from where captain henry now resides on the line between andover and north reading and bought a part of this philemon chandler place about eighteen o five since then his son captain harry and the latter's son henry edwards hayward have occupied the place isaac goldsmith a natural genius who resides last before reaching the plain lives where captain thomas c foster's father formerly owned the house was of one story and moved from the allen place it was afterward owned by ephraim allen and a part of it was removed to the whiting place where his servant resides kendall parker the hatter occupied it after foster and one dalton resided there about eighteen twelve he came from charlestown or chelsea and returned there levi troll a blacksmith with a shop in the corner beyond was there a while ephraim ebbett's son daniel was a blacksmith on the allen place until he died one russell and one johnson also lived there about half a mile from goldsmith's the plain is reached and the turn is made from the old boston road to the ballardville road where the gate stood that was the entrance to the bridle way the plain was owned formerly by several of the early proprietors of the town william mears resides on the plain in a home that was removed from stephen d abbott's farm by his father zebediah the latter married a miss butters about eighteen hundred and had a large family and he married second a wood moses built his house near his father's the first meeting of the company to consider the purchase of land above contucook was held at the ballard tavern the company was composed of men from andover wilmington and woburn there was quite a controversy about the line between andover and wilmington then woburn as many as one hundred years ago the road from the gate on the plain to ballardvale 
was fenced out by the proprietors when they had a meeting under an oak in 1794. The three ash trees in front of A.A. A. and S. Abbott's house were set out in the spring of 1822, and the elm at the west of them in 1829. The sugar maple was raised from seed brought from Maine by Asa. Wadley Noyes owns the Osgood Tavern in West Andover, near Hackett's Pond, and it was here that James Otis was killed by lightning. Deer Jump is in West Andover, and is now called the Gulf, the name having originated from the story of a deer jumping from Andover into Draycut, over the Merrimack, and leaving the prints of his feet. Down Shoots is in North Andover, near Reading. Old Salem Road runs by the oak tree called on Mr. Moses Abbott on May 7th. He says that Asa A. and Sylvester are great musicians and play the fife. He, Mr. Moses, beat the snare drum. Reuben Jones, who resides about one mile southeast of his house, was one of the company. At first, old Mr. Samuel Valpy, who resided in Lawrence, was bass drummer, then Samuel Merrill, who went to Dover. Ferguson learned the snare. Samuel Gray sometimes played cornet, and Richard Carleton, a printer, played the bugle. Captain Flagg, the printer, was a military man and took an interest in music, and Major Dudley was in his employ. Deacon Gould was also captain of the Light Infantry Company. There was also an artillery company, composed mostly of South Andover men, and a cavalry company, of which Major Samuel P. Blunt, who resides on the road from the seminary to North Andover, was commander. The butternut tree that stands where the barn which was burned formerly stood was brought by Martha Chandler in her handkerchief from the West Parish. Her father was Benjamin Fry, who married Elizabeth Clark, and died with smallpox soon after his return from the war in which he was engaged in privateering. Mr. Moses Abbott says his father first resided in the house now occupied by I. Alvin Farley in which Governor Phillips kept his store, and Mr. Abbott and his sister Martha F. were born there. They removed to the Chandler place, where the other children were born, all of whom died. Martha was born March 16, 1800, married Timothy Ballard, who died December 1844, and resides in Needham. Mr. Abbott, born April 10, 1802, married Trifina Montague Bowman, born Amherst, Massachusetts, December 23, 1804, and they have always resided on the place. Their children were Oramel Graves, born April 2, 1832, married October 14, 1863, to Martha A. Carroll of Milford, Connecticut, 2nd Lieutenant Company D, 50th Massachusetts, also was in Company B, 5th Regiment, and at the first Bull Run Battle. William Francis, born February 25, 1837, farmer, unmarried, is corporal in Company G, 37th Massachusetts Regiment. Hubbard Moses, born January 29, 1839, unmarried, clerk in a gentleman's furnishing store in Northampton, Massachusetts, sergeant in Company G, 37th Regiment. George Bowman, born May 20, 1843, married Anne Elizabeth, daughter of John and Phoebe Russell Chandler, of Andover, and served in Company G, 37th Regiment. They have also adopted a daughter, Mary Adise, born Sumner, Massachusetts, August 23, 1843, 
daughter of Curtis and Miranda Clapp Fairchild, Richard Murphy, an Irish boy, aged 14 years, taken from the State Almshouse in Tewkesbury, June 21, 1859, also lives there. Mr. Abbott's father, William Bowman, was son of William, born Westbrook, and Susanna Hines Bowman. Susanna Hines was born in Brookfield, Massachusetts, and lived to the age of 100 years, two months, and five days. Her mother, Tirza, was daughter of Caleb and Tryphena Montague Hubbard. Major Caleb Hubbard died in 1850, aged nearly 96 years, having been in the Battle of Bunker Hill and a witness of the burning of Charlestown. Mr. Abbott's grandfather lived to the age of 90 years and six months, and his wife Elizabeth, who was daughter of Henry and Rebecca Holt, lived where Deacon Eben Jones now resides, and died at the age of 95 years. Mr. Abbott has in his possession a commission from Governor Thomas Pownall, dated March 5, 1760, and belonging to Ensign Jonathan Holt for the 2nd Militia Company of Andover, 4th Regiment, under Captain George Abbott, Jr., and Colonel George Abbott, Jr. Mr. Abbott's ancestor, Barachias, son of John and Elizabeth Abbott, bought his house of Joseph Faulkner on November 14, 1730, about a mile east of the seminary, and now occupied by Noah Abbott, Jr.'s widow. Among his children were Rhoda, born April 24, 1747, who fell into a kettle of suds on June 1, 1749. Timothy, a twin brother, who died by a fall at the age of 25 years, and was buried in Wilton, New Hampshire. Elizabeth, who married a Shattuck, and died at Beverly, September 1779, on a journey from Blue Hill to her father's, aged 39 years. Mr. Abbott's grandfather, Captain Moses Abbott, was a surveyor, selectman, and schoolteacher. He was in the Indian Wars and kept a journal of his trip to Maine, but the account is lost, it having been loaned to a Boston man. He was also a referee to settle difficulties. Mr. Abbott's father lived a while in Salem and went to the farm about 1809, next after Vinyl left. His wife's mother, Fry, occupied a part of it. John Chandler, who once lived here, has a son, John, also George, who works for Captain Thomas Foster in the village next to Elm House, and Samuel, who has worked as a ship carpenter in the Navy Yard at Charlestown some time. In Hidden's house have lived, besides Chandler's and Hidden's, the widow of Reverend Barnard of Salem, John Shipman the trader, Richard Moores, John C. Allen, who married Captain Isaac Blunt's daughter, John H. Avery, student in 1835, widow Wyman in 1837, William Waters, who is a bookbinder in New York, Squire Peabody, who died in the village in 1842, William H. Wardwell, while his house was built in 1846, Professor Phelps about 1847, and Reverend Charles L. Mills, 1862-63. Miss Abigail Chandler says that her father Isaac married Abigail, daughter of James Holt, and lived on the homestead, and he married second Elizabeth Wyman. Children by first wife, Abigail, died young, Isaac, married Sally Thompson in Wilmington, Mary, born June 5, 1786, married David Hidden, 
who was born September 21, 1784, in Newburyport. Sarah Ann married John Crocker, resides in Springfield. Abigail, born September 3, 1795. Hannah, born about 1801, died aged nine years. David Hidden was the son of David and Elizabeth Stickney Hidden, and the grandson of Joseph Hidden, who died August 30, 1787, aged 73 years, and wife Mary, who died October 8, 1789, aged 73 years. Elizabeth Stickney Hidden's mother died November 30, 1787, aged 63 years, and her father was drowned at Newburyport Bar, April 1769. David and Mary Chandler Hidden's children, Mary Elizabeth, born February 13, 1818, David Isaac, born August 15, 1823, Abigail Jane, born 1825, died young, William Henry, died young. Their house was built 1811 to 1812, and the old house, about 25 rods west, was standing a few years after this was built. Mr. Woodbridge resided here before it was taken down and converted into the present house of John Parnell, near Salem Street, by Moses Wood. A large hickory stands just back of the site of the old house. Called on Sylvester Abbott, brother to Asa A., the water under the oaks dries up generally in June, but there is a spring in the pasture at the Sunset Rock, beyond Dr. Whitney's place. Mrs. Abbott says her father, Deacon Reuben Batchelder, born in Hampton Falls, was son of Deacon David and Mary Emery Batchelder. Her mother was Betsy, daughter Michael and Lucy Burnham Tilton. Mrs. Rhoda Abbott was born at Hampton Falls, New Hampshire, August 24, 1814. Their children, Carolyn Brown, born September 23, 1846, Horace Sylvester, died young, Elizabeth Batchelder, born July 27, 1850, Mary Smith, born June 8, 1854. Mr. Abbott's boarders now are John Harry Hughes from Cincinnati, Marlon S. Hughes from Reading, and Willard Sperry. Pompey Lovejoy was a slave to his grandmother's father, Henry Abbott, whose wife was Rose. They lived near what is now called Pomp's Pond, and every election day people went to his house to get his cake. At Marland Village was a powder mill, paper mill, and a grist mill, but now there is nothing but the mills. At Abbott Village there was a grist mill, carding mill, and fulling mill, also about 1820 a nail mill. At Ballardvale, the sawmill, grist mill, two runs of stone, and a small house for the man who tended the mill were all there were on this side of the river until Goldsmith's is reached. The mills were tended by Butterfield, the millwright, who perhaps came from Tingsboro about 1815. William Ferguson, who was a drummer and was in the War of 1812, was there as early as 1820. The grist and sawmill were taken away when the second mill was built, and on the opposite side of the river, the second mill was built near the site of the saw and grist mill, and some years after, a machine shop and foundry were built of stone, which was brought from about three or four miles east of Falls Wood. The building was used as a shoe manufactory a while, and is now used for the manufacture of files. The second house after the millers on the side of this river was Marlin's. 
he built on the site of Ellis's present house, and the house was burned. Daniel Poor probably built the first one. On the north side was only Timothy Ballard's, and a small one where Jonathan Abbott resided before the cloth mills were built, until N. Clark's house is reached. Timothy Ballard was injured by a cartload of corn, and later became insane and cut his throat in 1828. This was the first funeral after Reverend Mr. Badger was settled. On the Shawsheen River above Ballard Vale, there was a saw and grist mill on the edge of Tewkesbury, but both are gone now. There is a grist mill in the Holt district, an eastern part of the town, on a brook that rises in Pine Hole at the west side of Prospect Hill, where there was formerly a carding mill owned by Thomas Gray. James Parker was a very strong man, as were also Charles and Jonathan Holt, sons of Dia Holt, who resided west of Nathan Clark's. Jonathan was the champion wrestler of the North, South, and West parishes. Captain Nathan Shattuck is the handsomest wrestler in town. Called upon Deacon Gould's wife, who says that Timothy Ballard was born in Manning's house, July 31, 1757, and died February 29, 1828. His mother died at his house in 1809. Levi Troll lived in another small house, which two were the only houses when Mrs. Gould first went there to live in 1803. Eaton occupied the Troll house, and after him Jonathan Abbott lived there. Ballard had a quantity of land, also a blacksmith shop and cider mill. They also took summer boarders. Indian Ridge has been cut down, but formerly the top and sides were covered with oak trees. This place was named by Deacon Gould when they commenced building the factory. Mrs. Gould says her grandfather, William Foster, died August 30, 1803, aged 73 years. Her Aunt Mary, born July 21, 1763, married Timothy Ballard. Her grandmother, Hannah Abbott, wife of William Foster, died March 19, 1820, aged 87 years. Timothy Ballard was probably son of Timothy and Sarah, and his mother Sarah died August 2, 1809, aged 77 years. May 8th, called on William, son of William and Elizabeth Hackett, who says he bought his land, about 21 acres, of John Marland a few years before he built his house, which was in 1850, and they have resided in Andover since May 30, 1851, the day after they were married. He is this year putting up a barn that he bought of Jonathan Merrill in Abbott Village and removed to this place. Their children are William Henry, born May 9, 1852, and Edward Franklin and Albert Warren, twins, born October 3, 1855. Mr. Hackett was born in Brookfield, New Hampshire, October 8, 1812, and his father was second cousin to Daniel Webster. Mr. Hackett's mother was a daughter of James Thurston, and Mrs. Hackett's father, John Smith, is son of John and Susanna Newell Smith, and her mother was daughter of Aaron and Elizabeth Moulton Marsh. Mrs. Hackett was born in Danvers, May 9, 1820. Marland bought the land of Andrew B. Stimson, which belonged to the place on the other side of the street, nearly opposite Mr. Hackett's, and on the northerly side of the street, is where Joseph J. Pearson has resided since April 1853, having hired it of Hugh Wilson, now in Salem. Mrs. Ruth Wilkins was in the house at one time, 
but she removed to the Noah Abbott House and is now in Scotland District. Mr. Turnbull once owned and occupied it. The place was formerly called the Peter Shedd Place. Mr. Pearson was born where Albert Bancroft now resides, whose wife is Mr. Pearson's sister, on February 5, 1820, the son of Joseph and Sarah Foster Pearson. Mrs. Pearson was Dorcas Chadwick, daughter of James and Dorcas Ricker Chadwick, and was born in South Berwick, Maine, October 11, 1822. They resided in the Carter House, now Dr. Whiting's, in the house in which the widow of Putnam Curtis resides. Their children, George Henry, born October 12, 1848, Frank J. and Fred J., born June 11, 1855. Soon after leaving Mr. Pearson's, came to the crossing of an old bridle way, and the street descends. Called at Henry Edwards Hayward's, whose wife says that they have lived there 27 years or since marriage. Others who have resided there, William Hackett, 1842 to 1843, William Donald, a Scotchman, 1843 to 1844, Mrs. Alexander Beckett, while her husband was in England buying Durham cattle for Mr. Marland, and who had previously lived where Pearson lives now, and later moved to Lowell. Mr. Jabez Hayward's grandfather lived on the place until he died, which was about two years before Jabez was married. His grandfather's second wife, Lydia Swinnerton, formerly of Danvers, died in August 1837. Jabez Hayward's first wife was Nabby Graves, and his father is Captain Harry Hayward, and his mother is Eliza, daughter of Nathan and Hepzibah Ames Stimson. Mrs. Hayward, Polly Swain Curtis, is daughter of Israel and Phoebe, born in Middleton, October 10, 1811. Her father was son of Israel, and her mother daughter of John and Polly Swain Fuller. Mr. Hayward was born in the house on the line on October 7, 1815, and is a farmer with about 80 acres. Children, Helen Elizabeth, died aged 19 years, 4 months, Harriet Eliza, born February 3, 1839, Henry Albert, born January 6, 1841, is in the Navy on ship Potomac, enlisting June 17, 1861, stationed at Pensacola. George Edward, born February 13, 1842, who has been in Company H, 14th Regiment, since July, 1862. Charles Warren, born September 17, 1843. They have a niece boarding with them this summer, Sarah, daughter of Israel and Olive Flint Curtis, who lives about eight miles from Macomb, Illinois. Widow Ruth Upton of Wilmington is also there. Mr. Hayward has driven a milk cart to Ballardvale for nine years, being preceded by Deacon Dascombe and Herman P. Chandler. End of excerpt from A Genealogical Historical Visitation of Andover, Massachusetts in the year 1863 by Alfred Poor, M.D. Recording by Colleen McMahon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part 4 of Our Homes and Their Adornments by Almond C. Varney This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen Our Homes and Their Adornments, or How to Build, Finish, furnish and adorn a home part four the culture and propagation of flowers god might have bade the earth bring forth enough for great and small the oak tree and the cherry tree without a flower at all we might have had enough enough for every want of ours for luxury medicine and toil and yet have had no flowers our outward life requires them not, then wherefore had they birth? To minister delight to man, to beautify the earth, to comfort man, to whisper hope, whene'er his faith is dim. For whoso careth for the flowers will care much more for him. Mary Howitt Chapter 1 The Culture of Flowers how to have thriving plants and abundance of flowers. Useful suggestions. How to construct and manage hotbeds and flowerbeds. There is no employment which tends to the development of the better nature of men and women more than the culture of flowers. However humble the circumstances, the possession and culture of at least a few choice varieties will make the home more tidy and lend an air of refinement not to be attained in any other way. An English writer says, To have a flower garden is to have many friends continually near. Indeed, who will say that flowers do not lend a companionship to those who faithfully care for them? There is perhaps no better index of refinement in a home than the presence of flowers. It is no doubt very difficult in large cities, where the yards are of small dimensions, to do much in the way of flower gardens. But even there a few varieties, planted in the back yard, can be made to furnish many a bouquet for the breakfast, dinner, or tea table. In the smaller cities and towns, and in the country, no excuse can be offered for the neglect of flowers. Many plead want of time, but the excuse is not a good one, for but few minutes per day are required, and these few minutes furnish just such relaxation as everyone needs to keep away the wrinkles, cares, and perplexities of regular employment. Besides, the satisfaction and happiness gained in their care generally repay the possessor for all the attention they require. Brief Hints on Sowing and Cultivating In the outset, do not make the common mistake of most new beginners and undertake too many varieties at once. 
giving all the same treatment, for defeat will attend the effort. A good plan is to procure a seed catalogue, like D. M. Ferry and Companies of Detroit, and others which will tell you what every flower is, its culture, and when to expect flowers. Select from the catalogue a dozen or more good varieties, and content yourself with their culture until you can secure good results, and then increase your stock. The following hints will be of value in their care and culture. Selection of Varieties Success in flower culture depends quite largely upon a judicious selection of varieties. Every sort is, under certain conditions, attractive and desirable. But some of them, while exceedingly beautiful under favorable circumstances, will be most unsatisfactory and little better than weeds under others. The soil. Another great object to be considered is the soil into which flower seeds are to be sown. The soil best adapted to flowering plants generally is a light, friable loam, containing a sufficient amount of sand to render it porous. A great many varieties will live in almost any kind of soil, except it be extremely dry, calcareous, or of a stiff, heavy character. Still, to give them a fair chance for development, some little pains should be taken in adding to the soil as much as possible what may be wanting in it. Most flowers are better if produced on plants of most vigorous growth, so the greater portion of the garden should be prepared by deep digging, through pulverization, and liberal enriching with large quantities of well-rotted manure. On the other hand, some sorts do best on very poor soil, so a portion of the garden should be left without enriching at all. As the process of germination is shorter or longer in the different kinds of seeds, the patience of the cultivator is often sorely tried with seeds of a slowly germinating character. The patience of a devoted florist, however, is never exhausted in these manipulations, and the certainty of his final success repays him fully for the trouble. Sowing the Seed Nine-tenths of the failures in flower culture come from improper treatment of the seeds and young plants, and we urge everyone who makes an attempt to train and care for flowers to study our descriptions of each variety found in the succeeding pages, observing the following general rules. Make the surface as fine and smooth as possible. Do not plant any of the seeds when the ground is wet. Cover each sort of seed to a depth proportionate to its size. The finest, like portulaca, not more than one-quarter inch deep. Those the size of a pinhead, one-half inch, and those as big as a pea, one inch. Press the soil down firmly over the seed. After making the soil as fine as possible with the rake, make it for the smaller seeds still finer by crushing the lumps up in the hands. Procure a bit of lath. It would be better if plain smooth, about two feet long. Press the edge down into the soil evenly, so as to make a groove as deep as the seed is to be planted. Scatter the seed along this, allowing four or five of the larger, or fifteen to twenty of the smaller seeds, to the space one plant is to occupy when grown. 
take care not to spill any of the seeds between the rows. Cover the seed by pinching the earth together over it. Then turn your lath flatways and press the soil down firmly and evenly. Put a little stick at each end of each row so as to mark it. Then pull up all weeds that appear between the rows the first day they can be seen. Do not pull plants out of the row unless you are sure they are weeds. Classification of Flowers All flowers raised from seed are usually known as annuals, biennials, or perennials. Annuals are those plants which flower or ripen their seeds or fruits the season they are sown, and then perish. This class of plants is again divided by the cultivator into two classes, the hardy and the half-hardy or tender kinds. Hardy annuals are those which require no artificial heat at any period of their growth. Every stage of their development, from germination to ripening of the seed, being passed in the open ground. They are the most easily cultivated of all plants. The number of their varieties is large, and their flowers, when properly grown, are frequently of most attractive beauty and elegance. It is only to be regretted that they are not generally cultivated to that extent to which their merit justly entitles them. The seed may be sown from the 1st of April to the middle of June, along the border, in little patches four or six inches square, or in drills on the spot where they are wanted to blossom. And in doing so, care should be taken to have the different varieties arranged in such a manner as to produce a pleasing effect when they are in bloom. Half-hardy annuals are those species that flower and ripen their seeds in the open air but need the assistance of artificial heat in the earlier stages of their growth. They should be sown in a hotbed, or in pots in a greenhouse, if one is available, or in a sunny window. Keep them well shaded, which will prevent absorption by the rays of the sun, and the consequent necessity of frequent watering, which bakes the soil, and does much mischief to seeds of slow growth. Toward the middle or end of May, many of the seedlings will be ready for transplanting to borders, but previous to this exposure, it will be necessary to harden them preparatory to removal by gradually admitting air to the frame both day and night. Biennials and Perennials Biennials are those plants that do not generally flower the first year and are only in perfection one season. Perennials continue to flower several years in succession. The seed may be sown, as has already been stated, at times when the ground is moist, but not very wet, from the 1st of April to August. Many of them may be raised in the open ground, like hardy annuals, and transplanted. But tender or half-hardy kinds should be sown as directed for half-hardy annuals. As they do not generally bloom the first year, they may be thinned out or removed from the seed bed as soon as they are well rooted, and planted either in different parts of the garden or into nursery beds in rows a foot apart. 
the half-hardy or tender biennials must be kept during winter in a greenhouse or dry cellar and tender perennials must be protected from frost by a cloth or mat being fastened or tied around them and covered afterward with leaves or litter brief directions for sowing are given in our descriptions of varieties still to render success more certain a careful observance of the above directions which are based on the practical experience of growers will be found of great benefit to inexperienced florists hotbed culture many varieties of flowers can scarcely be brought to perfection without the assistance of hotbed or cold frame and much care is often necessary in transplanting sheltering and pricking out the young plants it is a work that requires much experience and no doubt many disappointments will naturally occur still a hotbed is a necessity without the aid of which many of our choicest and most beautiful flowers cannot be successfully grown experience is a rapid teacher and the lover of flowers is an apt scholar how to make a hotbed a hotbed that may be used for the germination of either flower or garden seeds may be made at little expense in the following manner if possible it should be built against the south side of a shed or board fence as this arrangement will protect it from winds and will increase the heat construct a box or frame of boards two feet high on the side that is to face the south and one and one-half feet higher on the opposite side when the frame is in place fill it with nearly fresh manure from a horse stable to the depth of one and a half feet fit sashes with panes of glass lapping like shingles over the top and let it stand two or three days or longer if the weather is cold now fill in on top of the manure from four to six inches of good rich finely pulverized garden soil which if of stiff clay should be mixed with sand and cover the bed as before leave it for a few days taking the precaution to raise a bank of earth around the outside of the frame to further protect it after a few days stir the soil and sow the seeds in drills marked with flat sticks Label the sticks with each variety. Give the bed fresh air each day and sprinkle with warm water as often as may be required. Use great care in attending to the bed. When the day is warm, the sash should be lifted and replaced at night. And unless it is cold enough to chill the plants, fresh air should be admitted at all times. It sometimes happens that the bed heats and it is necessary then to watch it closely examine it by plunging the hand down several inches if it is hot remove the sash use water not cold and make deep holes in the bed with sticks for the escape of heat and fill them up when the heat is reduced if the nights are very cold cover the frame with mats or blankets if such a frame is made large enough garden vegetables can be had several weeks earlier than when grown in the ordinary manner flowers may also be raised 
by planting the seeds in the pots intended for them, and then sinking them in the hotbed. The Flower Garden Where it is possible, flower gardens should be so located as to be shaded from the afternoon sun. Elaborate beds are to be avoided unless one has abundant time to devote to their care. An endless variety of simple designs for beds can be arranged, and the simpler the better for the effect, unless much elaboration can be afforded. Spade the beds very deep, and mix manure, sand, and rotted leaves with the soil, raising them very little above the surface. For borders, use brick set edgewise, large, smooth pebbles, or narrow planking. Strips of turf, if the grass is kept well clipped, also make a pretty border. Well-sodded mounds, topped with low flowers, look quite pretty, but in dry weather they are very liable to dry out and need abundance of water. Chapter 2 Description of Varieties A List of Bulbs with Methods of Treatment Climbers Annuals Varieties Suitable for All Purposes the following descriptions will be of great value in the selection of flowers. The list includes all kinds, climbers, bulbs, annuals, and hardy shrubs. Bulbs, tuberose. Of all the summer-flowering, bulbous plants, we think the tuberose the most desirable. The flowers are waxy white, double, and so fragrant as to perfume the whole atmosphere for some distance around. They are useful for making buttonhole bouquets, in large bouquets, or as single specimens. Each bulb flowers only once, but the smaller bulbs can be set out for future flowering when their growth is completed. A good way to grow tuberoses is to fill five-inch pots half full of cow manure and the remainder with good rich earth mixed with sand. Plant the bulbs in this in April, water moderately, and hasten growth by putting in a warm, light place. When the weather has become warm, plunge the pots in the earth out of doors. They will usually flower before cold weather in autumn. If they do not, the pots can be brought in, and they will bloom in the house. Cyclamen, well-known and universally admired bulbous-rooted plants, producing exceedingly handsome red and white flowers. The seed should be sown in spring, and by autumn will produce a bulb, which, if potted and placed in a conservatory or greenhouse, will blossom the following spring, propagated only from seed. Cyclamen, persicum, Mixed, greenhouse variety of great beauty, and many colors. Madeira vine. Tuberous-rooted climber, with glossy green leaves and delightfully fragrant white blossoms, sometimes called mignonette vine. It is of rapid growth, and from a few tubers, vines will be produced sufficient to cover one side of the cottage. The tubers are tender and must be protected from frost during the winter. 
lily the lily has been with eminent propriety styled the queen of flowers and truly no flower conveys so adequate an idea of queenly beauty majestic grandeur and faultless purity as the lily their culture is simple and with a little care failure is impossible select a deep rich soil enrich it well with thoroughly decomposed manure and set the bulbs from three to six inches deep according to size in the autumn the bed should be protected by a liberal covering of leaves or litter and care should be taken that the bulbs have the proper drainage no water being allowed to stand around the roots the bulbs can be transplanted either in spring or autumn but should be kept out of the ground the shortest possible time once firmly established they should not be disturbed oftener than once in five years many of the varieties force well in the greenhouse but are more suitable for parlor culture bleeding heart this is a tuberous rooted plant blooming in the spring and favorably known almost everywhere it requires only the ordinary culture of border plants roots planted in autumn will flower freely in the spring the roots should be divided every third year the flowers are a delicate pink color very graceful produced continuously from may to july dahlia the dahlia has always been a favorite for autumn flowering the flowers are so symmetrical and perfect and the range of brilliant colors so wide and varied that they will always be popular where display is wanted the roots are tender and easily injured by frost they should be set out three feet apart after all danger of frost is over and placed in a cool cellar and not be allowed to freeze during winter the plants should be supported by tying to stakes gladiolus magnificent plants with sword-like leaves and long spikes of flowers of every conceivable color and shade the varieties are now numbered almost by thousands each year bringing forth new and choice selections which have been produced from seed this being the only method of obtaining new varieties the bulb which is produced from seed requires three years growth before being of sufficient size to flower well they should be taken up on approach of winter and kept from freezing till warm weather in spring and then planted out in groups and borders calla an old and very desirable plant either as an aquatic or for the ornamentation of the drawing-room and conservatory thrives in any light rich soil when plentifully watered the seeds which should be sown in greenhouse in early spring produce small bulbs in the fall which should be repotted in rich soil the production of large plants from seed takes some time but the beautiful creamy white flowers are an ample reward for the care and patience bestowed half-hardy perennial climbers 
clematis, well-known and universally admired climbers, some of the varieties being remarkable for the beauty and fragrance of their blossoms, fine for covering arbors, verandas, etc., as they cling readily to almost any object. Most of the kinds are hardy, herbaceous perennials, but some little protection in northern latitudes through winter is advised. Will do well in any good garden soil. Cypress vine, a most beautiful climber, with delicate, dark green, feather foliage, and an abundance of bright, star-shaped, rose, scarlet, and white blossoms, which in the bright sunshine presents a mass of beauty. Planted by the side of veranda, tree, or stakes, and trained properly, there is nothing prettier. The seeds will germinate more freely if warm water be poured on the ground after planting. Tender annual, 15 feet high. Gourds, a tribe of climbers with curiously shaped fruit in various colors. Being of rapid growth, they are fine to cover old fences, trellises, stumps, etc. The foliage is quite ornamental, and the markings of some of the fruit quite extraordinary. Do not plant the seed till all danger of frost is over, and select rich, mellow ground. Tender annual climbers, 10 to 20 feet high. Ipomea, beautiful climbers, and exceedingly attractive mixed with other climbers. The flowers are of a variety of shapes and sizes, and of an endless number of colors, many being wondrously brilliant and of graceful form. They are alike good for greenhouse, for pots and baskets, and for trellises, stumps, arbors, etc. They require heat in starting, and some of the varieties will not succeed out of the greenhouse. Tender annuals, five to ten feet high. Morandia, graceful climber for greenhouse, parlor, baskets, or outdoor purposes. Set out in the border with a little frame to which to attach their tendrils. They will be loaded all the season with rich purple, white, and rose foxglove-shaped blossoms. The seed should be started in hotbed or greenhouse, as without artificial heat, they will scarcely flower the first season. They must be removed to a warm place on the approach of cold weather in autumn. Tender perennial climber, six feet high. Smilax. No climbing plant in cultivation surpasses this for the graceful beauty of its foliage. In cut flowers and for wreaths, etc., it is indispensable to florists. Its hard texture enables it to be kept several days after being cut, without wilting. Nothing is finer for clothing statuettes, vases, etc. Soak the seed in warm water twelve hours, and plant in pots in hotbed or greenhouse in February and keep in a warm, moist place. One plant in a two-inch pot is enough. After they have completed their growth and the foliage begins to turn yellow, turn the pots on their sides, and withhold water till August, 
when the little bulb which has formed can be repotted in good rich earth and watered freely and it will grow all winter tender perennial climber ten feet high annuals and perennials aster no family of plants bears such distinct marks of progress as the aster and none are more eagerly sought an almost endless variety always reliable it is not strange that they should become a necessity the kinds found in the flower garden are usually french or german and when circumstances for their growth are favorable present a constant varying succession of blossoms till frost comes the taller varieties should be supported by stakes or trellises the seed should be sown early in spring and the young plants transplanted from one to two feet apart according to the height and size begonia ornamental foliage greenhouse and stove plants with many-colored succulent leaves oblique at their base very useful for ferneries greenhouses and parlor decoration some of the varieties in addition to their beautiful foliage produce magnificent blossoms they have been so much improved and so many new flowering sorts introduced that we almost fail to recognize the species some are propagated from seed only others from cuttings all require a rich soil camellia all species of camellias are universally admired on account of their beautiful rose-like flowers and elegant dark green shining laurel-like leaves they are hardy greenhouse shrubs of easy culture requiring only to be protected from frost the best soil for them is an equal quantity of good sandy loam and peat they are propagated by inarching cuttings grafting and from seed the latter being the only method of obtaining new varieties when the plants are not growing they should receive but little water and when growing freely can scarcely receive too much a regular succession of flowers may be obtained from autumn till july if attention be given to removing the potted and growing plants from a warm to a cooler atmosphere when the growth is completed and the flower buds formed a cool sheltered situation is best for they will be seriously injured if exposed to the rays of the sun calceolaria a favorite and universally admired genus remarkable for its large beautifully spotted blossoms which are very showy and from which an almost countless number of hybrids have been raised they are perennial are grown in pots in the conservatory greenhouse and garden but few flowers are held in greater esteem they prefer a turfy loam a mixture of peat and sand or a rich open garden mold and are propagated from seed or cuttings some of them are herbaceous perennials others shrubby evergreens carnation 
no flower can surpass in delicacy of marking form or delicious fragrance the richly hued carnation it has always been one of the most esteemed of the florist's collection and there is no flower more desirable for the garden the seed will not produce all double flowers though a good percentage will be double and of all shades and colors many being very fragrant so under glass in greenhouse or hotbed and when of sufficient size transplant two feet apart each way new and choice varieties are obtained from seed half hardy perennial one and a half feet high candy tuft universally known and cultivated and considered indispensable for cutting all the varieties look best in beds or masses seed sown in the autumn produces flowers early in spring when sown in april flower from july to september and some of the sorts till frost comes all the varieties are hardy and easy to cultivate single plants transplanted look well and bloom profusely hardy annual one foot high chrysanthemum the following are the old garden varieties producing flowers white yellow and variegated single and double they flower in autumn and are desirable where there are large collections as they are brilliant and striking the single sorts are quite as handsome as the double hardy annual one and a half to two feet high chrysanthemum coronarium double white chrysanthemum coronarium double yellow chrysanthemum buridganum crimson white center single chrysanthemum coronarium mixed dahlia this exceedingly beautiful genus comprises an almost endless number of varieties all more or less showy in the flower garden in autumn when most other flowers have faded they are all of easy cultivation growing freely in almost any soil from seed sown in spring the seed should be sown in shallow pans in march and the seedlings transplanted to small pots as soon as danger of frost is over plant out one foot apart these plants will make tubers which should be taken up in the fall and kept through the winter in a cool dry place away from frost and planted out in the spring when they will blossom the following autumn new varieties are constantly being produced from seed some of them of exquisite beauty fuchsia well known half-hardy perennial deciduous shrubs worthy a place in every garden the varieties are now numbered by hundreds and some are exceedingly beautiful they are easily grown from seed and as cuttings and from seed many improved varieties are obtained so in march in shallow pots prick out in crocks four inches in diameter when of convenient size 
where they can continue to grow till they bloom. As soon as they have flowered, select such as have good points, and change into larger pots. When frost appears, protect the plants. Heliotrope Highly valued for the fragrance of their flowers and duration of bloom, and are to be met with in most gardens. They succeed in any rich, light soil, and cuttings of the shrubby kinds, taken off while young, strike readily. Half-hardy perennial, one foot high. Mignonette, a well-known hardy annual, producing dense, semi-globular heads of exceedingly fragrant flowers, borne on spikes from three to six inches long is in bloom nearly the whole season, and the perfume is so fragrant that the whole atmosphere around is perfumed. No garden should be without it. If sown at intervals during the spring and early summer, it will be in bloom till killed by the frost. Seeds sown in autumn will bloom early in spring. Hardy annual, perennial if protected. One foot. Oleander. This well-known shrub, originally a native of India, is of easy culture, and flowers freely the greater part of the year. In warm, moist climates, it requires no protection, and attains the proportions of a good-sized tree. The flowers have a salver-shaped corolla, with a crown of torn appendages in the center and are of a beautiful shade of pinkish-red. They can be produced successfully in the house if the atmosphere is kept moist and warm. Sow seeds in gentle heat in February or March, in light, rich soil, which must be kept moist. When young plants are three or four inches high, repot in rich soil. The temperature in which plants are grown should not fall below 35 degrees. The young shoots made one season should bloom the next. Pansy. These lovely flowers are favorites with all, not only for the brilliancy and variety of their colors, but for the durability of their bloom. Seed may be sown in open ground in spring or summer, or in hotbed early in spring. Young plants produce the largest and best flowers. The plants should always occupy a cool, partially shaded situation, and the ground cannot be too rich. Coolness and moisture are necessary. Transplant when an inch high. Seed sown in July will blossom late in autumn. If sown in October, will bloom the following spring. Hardy biennial, four inches high. Geranium. Probably the geranium is better known and more universally admired than any other plant grown. The constant succession and durability of bloom till frost comes, the brilliancy of the scarlet and other colors, and the exquisite markings of the leaves of some of the varieties render them very desirable for pot culture and bedding. No garden seems complete without a bed of them, and in every collection of conservatory or parlor plants, 
we are sure to find the geranium. Propagation by seed is the only sure way to obtain superior varieties. So in March, in gentle heat, in well-drained pots. Water moderately, and as soon as the third leaf appears, pot singly in two-inch crocks, exchanging for larger ones as the plants require. As soon as the weather will permit, plunge the pots in open border, and on the approach of frost, remove them to a shed. They will blossom the succeeding spring. Propagation for common varieties can be made from cuttings. Ferns Flowerless plants, too well known to need description. Many of the varieties are exquisitely beautiful. There are so many sorts, varying so widely in habit, that to give explicit directions for the culture of each would require a volume of itself. As a general rule, they should be kept in a warm, humid atmosphere, and watered abundantly. The soil best adapted to their growth is a turfy, fibrous peat, mixed with sand and leaf mold, and underlaid with pieces of broken crock. In places too shady for other plants to thrive, they grow in great beauty. Coming as they do from every clime, we find them a very interesting study. They are alike good for baskets, vases, rockwork, ornamental plants for parlor or conservatory, and the pressed leaves of some of the varieties are marvels of graceful beauty. Many of the most beautiful sorts are propagated from seed only. Their exceeding grace and beauty will well repay all care bestowed upon them. Fox Drummondii Remarkable for the brilliancy and abundance of their large, terminal flowers, completely hiding the foliage. The blossoms are of many colors, from pure white to deepest purple, eyed and striped. For masses of separate colors, and for cutting for bouquets, they are unsurpassed. The seed can be planted in open ground in autumn or spring or plants may be started in hotbed and transplanted. Give good, rich ground, and set plants six inches apart each way. Hardy annual, one foot high. Snapdragon The snapdragon is an old favorite border plant, with dark and glossy leaves, and large, curiously shaped flowers with finely marked throats. They have been much improved by careful selection, and now are really magnificent flowers. They will blossom the first season from seeds sown in spring, but the blossom will be much stronger the second season. Succeeds best in dry, loamy soil. Tender perennial, two feet high. Violet The violet should not be wanting in any garden, on account of its fragrance and early appearance. A single flower will perfume a whole room. It is well adapted for border or rock work, and commences putting forth its beautiful double and single blossoms in April, and continues through May. Succeeds best in a shady, sheltered place, 
and can be easily increased by dividing the root. The violet is an emblem of faithfulness. Hardy perennial, four inches high. Zinnia, a very showy plant, with large double flowers, which, when fully expanded, form hemispherical heads, become densely imbricated, and might easily be mistaken for dwarf dahlias. The colors run through all the shades of carmine, lilac, scarlet, purple, crimson, yellow, to pure white. If any single blossoms appear, they should be at once pulled up. Sow the seed early in spring, in open ground, and transplant to one and a half feet apart, in good, rich soil. Half-hardy annual, one and a half feet high. Chinese Primrose These are perhaps the most desirable of all house-blooming plants, and will richly compensate for the little care they require. They are in almost constant bloom all winter, and if the plants be transferred to the border, they will bloom nearly all summer. Though perennial, new plants flower more freely, and seed should be sown every year. Give them a long time for growth before flowering, and do not force the young plants, but simply protect them from frost and damp cutting winds. Sow the seed in shallow boxes, filled with good rich soil, dusting a little fine earth over them. If covered too deeply, or if the seed be wet and allowed to dry again, they will not germinate. Transplant into pots, and they will be ready for winter blooming in the drawing room. Tender perennial, six to nine inches high. Roses. The rose requires high culture. It should be planted in good, well-drained soil. The ground can scarcely be made too rich. The pruning required will vary with the sorts planted. The rank growing requiring less pruning than the weak ones. The points particularly to be observed are to prune before the buds start in spring to cut out all unripe or old and feeble shoots, and to cut back the last season's growth to from one-half to two-thirds its length, according to the vigor of the sorts. Winter protection of tender sorts is accomplished by covering after a few severe frosts, with leaves, straw, evergreen boughs, or earth, or by removing the plants to a cool cellar. With a little care of this kind, the choicest tender roses may be safely wintered, and as they are the only really perpetual roses, they are abundantly worth the extra care. The insects most commonly injurious to the rose, as the aphis, which appear in great numbers upon the young growing shoots, and the thrips, which prey upon the underside of the leaf, giving it a sickly, yellowish look may easily be destroyed by syringing or dipping the plants in tobacco water. Petunia Petunias are unsurpassed, if indeed equaled, for massing in beds. Their richness of color, duration of bloom, and easy culture 
will always render them popular. They will do well sown in open border in spring, or earlier in cold frame or hotbed, and transplanted eighteen inches apart. By the latter process, they will come into bloom much earlier, though they do perfectly well sown in open ground. Be careful not to cover the small seeds too deep. They like a sandy loam. Tender perennial, one and a half feet high. Water lily, hardy aquatic plant, bearing exceedingly beautiful, fragrant white blossoms, which appear as if floating on the water. They are very much admired, and are constantly becoming more and more popular. Are increased by sowing the seed, or by dividing the roots or tubers. They grow readily in ponds or streams of shallow water, having muddy bottoms, and can be grown in aquariums, tubs, or tanks in the house, if there be sufficient mud at the bottom, and the seeds or roots be kept continually covered with water. Cultivation in tubs. For a tub, take a strong barrel, free from tar, oil, or salt. Saw it in two. Fill this one-third full with fine black garden soil, or meadow mud if handy. Plant the seeds in this mixture, covering them one inch deep. Add water gently, so as not to disturb the seed, until the tub is full. This is all the care needed. Always keep the tub full of water. Set this on a brick or board platform in any place you desire. The tubs with their contents should be placed in a cellar during the winter, kept from frost, and not allowed to entirely dry up. For aquariums, put in five inches of fine black loam. Cover the seed one inch deep in this and sift on enough fine sand to entirely cover the loam. Ice Plant A handsome and curious plant for hanging baskets, rockwork, vases, and edgings. The leaves and stems are succulent and fleshy, and appear as though covered with ice crystals and look like rock candy. The whole plant is peculiarly brilliant in the sunshine. The flower is white and not conspicuous. Succeeds best in dry, sandy loam and in a warm situation. Can be grown in pots or open border, the former having preference. Tender annual trailer, six inches high. Balsam. The balsam or lady's slipper is an old favorite but has been so much improved by cultivation as to be scarcely recognized. The blossoms are double, though some semi-double and single ones will be pretty certain to appear, and such plants should be removed. The prevailing colors are red and white, the former running into all shades of crimson, scarlet, rose, and purple, spotted and striped. The flowers will be improved by planting in a hotbed and transplanting when two leaves have formed, one or two feet apart. Pinch off a portion of the shoots, which will increase the size of the flower and vigor of the plant. 
needs a rich soil and good cultivation, well repaying for both with the abundance of its magnificent flowers. Adjuratum A valuable plant on account of the length of time it remains in bloom, and for contrasts of color with the more brilliant varieties. It blooms constantly all summer in the garden, and if removed to the greenhouse all winter, desirable for cut flowers for bouquets, grows one and a half feet high, and the plants should stand two feet apart. Colors light blue and pure white. Start the seeds under glass and transplant. Hardy annual. Abutilon. Very popular, perennial, greenhouse shrub, with bell-shaped, drooping flowers, which are born in profusion nearly the entire year. Well adapted to house culture, and desirable for bedding out in the summer. There are several varieties, the flowers of which vary from pure white and yellow to deep orange and crimson, streaked with yellow, can be propagated by cuttings in sand under glass during summer. If seeds are sown before April under glass, the plant will bloom the first season. Chapter 3. Window Gardening How to Have Flowers All Winter Best Varieties for Winter Use How to Care for the Flowers Their Arrangement in the Window In addition to what has been said in the chapters on the culture of flowers, it is thought proper to add a few hints upon the subject of window gardening. There are but few plants that will not thrive indoors, under proper conditions of light and temperature. A window which admits much light by day should be selected, and as plants must have their periods of sleep, provisions should be made for shutting off the bright glare of the lamp at night. A few plants, well cared for, look better than a window full of plants so closely crowded as to cause them to grow spindling and turn yellow. Regarding soil, the reader is referred to other chapters in this work, but it is well to state that the pots for window plants should be filled to the depth of one or more inches with charcoal, to assist in drainage and to keep the soil sweet. Care should be used in watering, as plants are easily drowned out. If during a gentle warm shower the plants can be so placed as to receive it, they will be all the better for it. They should generally be watered once a day with a watering pot, never poured on, the water being about the temperature of the room. The morning is perhaps the best time for watering, and it should never be done while the sun shines upon the plants. Plants that have flowered all the summer cannot be expected to continue the process during the winter as they must have a period of rest before they can mature. Those which are wanted for flowering in winter must be started late in the summer from seeds or cuttings, or if started earlier, they must be set away or laid down till autumn. The bulbous plants for winter use should be laid down in the shade in May, and given no water till September, when they may be repotted, and will become active in a few weeks. Cuttings for winter 
may be potted in midsummer. Monthly roses, geraniums, fuchsias, heliotropes, callas, begonias, and for climbers, the cypress vine, nasturtium, and ivy are the plants that require the least trouble and succeed best. For supporting the pots, a window box is the cheapest. It can be lined with zinc and filled in around the pots with moss if desirable. A strong wire stand set on casters is very handy as it can be moved around and is moreover ornamental. The illustrations given in this department are intended to suggest the methods that may be employed in window gardening, and it is not deemed necessary to enter into a lengthy description of them. On page 329 is illustrated a bay window. Below is given a good plan where the bay window is wanting, and drops a hint as to how an ivy may be concealed behind a mirror, with its graceful loops hanging down on each side, and a small portion just peeping into the glass. The cut on page 331 shows how the scroll saw may be employed in window gardening. The lambrequin at the top is made of wood, decorated with the scroll saw. We have seen shrubs employed with excellent results in making a background for the more showy plants, and in one instance, a species of maple, eight feet high and full leaf in midwinter, was perhaps the most admired of the whole collection. Of course, the arrangement of plants in a window or cabinet must depend, in a great measure, upon the taste of the possessor. But excellent effects can be produced almost anywhere with small-leafed ivy, madeira vine, smilax, and other hardy climbers set off by a few showy geraniums and similar flowers. One of the principal reasons why flowers bought on the streets or at the markets prove so unsatisfactory is because they are placed in small pots to save room, in the damp pits where they are grown, and when they come to be transferred to the sitting-room or balcony, the earth soon bakes and the flower-buds fall off without opening. If the common flower-pots in which the plants are growing be placed inside ornamental pots a few sizes larger, and the intermediate space be stuffed with wet moss, the closing up and fading can generally be prevented. A still better plan is to arrange a window-box to receive the pots. This should be from seven to ten inches deep, filled with earth or moss, and lined with zinc. End of Part 4 of Our Homes and Their Adornments by Almond C. Varney Section on Knots of Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Freddie Pan Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, volume 15, slice 8 First part of the entry of knots by Peter Guthrie Trait Knot, Old English, nota, 
from a Teutonic stem, nut, confer, knit, and German, noten. An intertwined loop of rope, cord, string, or other flexible material used to fasten two such ropes and other similar things to one another or to another object. For the various forms which such knots may take, see below. The word is also used for the distance markers on a log line, and hence as the equivalent of a nautical mile, see log. And for any hard mass, resembling a knot drawn tight, especially one formed in the trunk of a tree at the place of the intersection of a branch. Knots in wood are the remains of dead branches which have become buried in the wood of the trunk or branch on which they are born. When the branch dies down or is broken off, the dead stump becomes grown over by a healing tissue, and, as the stem which bears it increases in thickness, gradually buried in a newer wood. When a section is made of the stem, the dead stump appears in the section as a knot. Thus, in a broad, it forms a circular piece of wood, liable to fall out and leave a knot hole. Knot, or knob, is an architectural term for a bunch of flowers, leaves, or other ornamentation carved on a corbel or on a boss. The word is also applied figuratively to any intricate problem, hard to distangle a used stereotype in the proverbial Gordian knot, which, according to tradition, was cut by Alexander the Great. See Gordium. Knots, bends, hitches, splices, and seizings are all ways of fastening cords or ropes, either to some other object, such as a spar or a ring, or to one another. The knot is formed to make a knob on a rope, generally at the extremity, and by untwisting the strands at the end and weaving them together. A seizing, French, sasir, is made by fastening two spars to one another by a rope, or two ropes by a third, or by using one rope to make a loop on another, as for example, the racking seizing, the round seizing, and the midshipman's hitch. The use of the words is often arbitrary, there is, for instance, no difference in principle between the fisherman's bend and the timber hitch. Speaking generally, the knot and the seizing are meant to be permanent and must be unwoven in order to be unfastened, while the bend and hitch can be undone at once by pulling the ropes in the reverse direction from that in which they are meant to hold. Yet the reef knot can be cast loose with ease and is wholly different in principle for instance, from the diamond knot. These various forms of fastening are employed in many kinds of industry, as for example in scaffolding, as well as in seamanship. The governing principle is that the strain which pulls against them shall draw them tighter. The ordinary knots and splices are described in every book on seamanship. Overhand knot used at the end of ropes to prevent their unreaving and as the commencement of other knots. Take the end A around the end B. Figure of 8 knot, used only to prevent ropes from unreaving. It forms a large knob. Reef knot, from an overhand knot as above, then take the end A over the end B and through the bite. If the end A were taken under the end B, a granny would be formed. 
This knot is so named from being used in tying the reef points of a sail. Bowline. Lay the end A of a rope over the standing part B. Form with B a bite C over A. Take A round behind B and down through the bite C. This is a most useful knot employed to form a loop which will not slip. Running bowlines are formed by making a bowline around its own standing part above B. It is the most common and convenient temporary running noose. Bowline on a bite. The first part is made similar to the above with the double part of the rope. Then the bite A is pulled through sufficiently to allow it to be bent over past D and come out in the position shown in figure 9. It makes a more comfortable sling for a man than a single bite. Half hitch. Pass the end A of the rope around the standing part B and through the bite. Two half hitches. The half hitch repeated. This is commonly used and is capable of resisting to the full strength of the rope. A stop from A to the standing part will prevent it from jamming. Clove hitch. Pass the end A around the spar and cross it over B. Pass it around the spar again and put the end A through the second bite. Blackwall hitch. Form a bite at the end of a rope and put the hook of a tackle through the bite so that the end of the rope may be jammed between the standing part and the back of the hook. Double black wall hitch. Pass the end A twice around the hook and under the standing part B at the last cross. Cat's paw. Twist up two parts of a lanyard in opposite directions and hook the tackle in the eye's eye-eye. A piece of wood should be placed between the parts at G. A large lanyard should be clove hitched around a large toggle and the strap passed around it below the toggle. Marling spike hitch. Lay the end A over C. Fold the loop over on the standing part B, then pass the marline spike through, over both parts of the bite and under the part B. Use for tightening each turn of a seizing. Fisherman's Bend. Take two turns around the spar, then a half hitch around the standing part and between the spar and the turns. Lastly, a half hitch around the standing part. Studding Sail Halyard Bend. Similar to the above, except that the end is tucked under the first round turn. This is more snug. A Magnus hitch has two round turns and one on the other side of the standing part with the end through the bite. Timber hitch. Take the end A of a rope around the spar, then around the standing part B, then several times around its own part C against the lay of the rope. Carrick bend. Lay the end of one hauser over its own part to form a bite as E0 and B. Pass the end of another hauser up through the bite near B, going out over the first end at C, crossing under the first long part and over its end at D, then under both long parts, forming the loops, and above the first short part at B, terminating at end E not not, in the opposite direction vertically and horizontally to the other end. The ends should be securely stopped 
to their respective starting parts, and also a stop put on the bucket or extreme end to prevent it catching a pipe or choke. In that form, this is the best quick means of uniting two large houses since they cannot jam. When large horses have to work through small pipes, good security may be obtained either by passing 10 or 12 taut racking turns with a suitable strand and securing each end to a standing part of the hawser, or by taking half as many round turns taut, crossing the ends between the horses over the sizings and reef-knotting the ends. This should be separated in three places and the extreme ends well stopped. Connecting horses by bowline knots is very objectionable, as the band is large and the knots jam. Sheet band. Pass the end of one rope through the bite of another, round both parts of the other and under its own standing part. Use for bending small sheets to the clues of sails which present bites ready for the hitch. An ordinary net is composed of a series of sheet bands. A weaver's knot is made like a sheet band. Single wall knot. Unlay the end of a rope and with the strand a form a bite. Take the next strand B around the end of A. Take the last strand C round the end of B and through the bite made by A. Haul the ends taut. Single wall crown. Form a single wall and lay one of the ends A over the knot. Lay B over A and C over B and through the bite of A. Haul the ends taut. Double wall and double crown. Form a single wall crown, then let the ends follow their own parts round till all the parts appear double. Put the ends down through the knot. Matthew Walker. Unlay the end of a rope. Take the first strand round the rope and through its own bite. The second strand around the rope through the bite of the first and through its own bite. The third through all three bites. Haul the ends taut. Inside Clitch The end is bent close around the standing part till it forms a circle and a half. When it is securely seized at A, B and C, thus making a running eye, when taut around anything, it jams the end. It is used for securing hemp cables to anchors, the standing parts of topsail sheets, and for many other purposes. If the eye were formed outside the bite, an outside clinch would be made, depending entirely on the seizings, but more ready for shipping. Midshipman's Hitch Take two round turns inside the bite, the same as a half hitch repeated. Stop up the end or let another half hitch be taken or held by hand. Use for hooking a tackle for a temporary purpose. Turk's head. With fine line, very dry, make a clove hitch around the rope, cross the bites twice, passing the end the reverse way, up or down, each time. Then, keeping the whole spread flat, let each end follow its own part round and round till it is too tight to receive any more. Used as an ornament variously on side ropes and foot ropes of jibbums. It may also be made with three ends, 
two formed by the same piece of line secured through the rope and one single piece, form them a diamond knot, then each end cross over its neighbour follows its own path as above. Spanish windlass. An iron bar and two marling spikes are taken. Two parts of a seizing are twisted like a cat's paw, passed around the bar, and hoof round till sufficiently taut. In heaving shrouds together to form an eye, two round turns are taken with a strand and the two ends hoof upon. When a lever is placed between the parts of a long lashing or frapping and hoof round, we have what is also called a Spanish windlass. Slings. This is simply the bite of a rope turned up over its own part. It is frequently made of chain when a shackle, bow up, takes the place of a bite at S and another at Y, connecting the two ends with the part which goes round the mast head. Used to sling lower yards. For boats' yards, it should be a gummet with a timbal seized in at Y. As the tendency of all yards is to cant forward with the weight of the sail, the part marked by an arrow should be the foresight, easily illustrated by a round ruler and a piece of twine. Spirit Sail Sheet Knot This knot consists of a double wall and double crown made by the two ends, consequently with six strands with the ends turned down. Used formerly in the clues of sails, now as an excellent stopper, a lashing or shackle being placed at S and a lanyard around the head at L. Turning in a dead eye cutter stay fashion. A band is made in the stay or shroud around its own part and hoofed together with a bar and strand. Two or three seizings diminishing in size, one round and one or two either round or flat, are hoofed on taut and snug, the end being at the side of the fellow part. The dead eye is put in and the eye driven down using a commander. Turning in a dead eye end up. The shroud is measured around the dead eye and marked where a throat seizing is hoofed on. The dead eye is then forced into its place, or it may be put in first. The end beyond A is taken up taut and secured with a round seizing. Higher still, the end is secured by another seizing, as it is important that the lay should always be kept in the rope as much as possible. These eyes should be formed comfortably, either right-handed or left-handed. It is easily seen which way a rope would actually kink by putting a little extra twist onto it. A shroud whose dead eye is turned in and up will bear a fairer strain, but it is more dependent on the seizings. The underturns of the throat are first to break and the others the first to slip. With the cutter stay fashion, the standing part of the shroud gives way under the nip of the eye. A rope will afford the great resistance to strain when secured round large timbals with a straight end and a sufficient number of flat or racking seizings. To splice shrouds round dead eye is objectionable on account of opening the strands and admitting water, thus hastening decay. In small vessels, especially yards, it is admissible on the score of neatness. In that case, a round seizing is placed between the dead eye and the splice. 
The dead eye should be in diameter one and a half times the circumference of a hemp shroud and thrice of that wire. The lanyard should be half the nominal size of hemp and the same size as wire. Thus, hemp shroud 12 inches, wire 6 inches, dead eye 18 inches, lanyard 6 inches. Short splice. The most common description of splice is when a rope is lengthened by another of the same size, or nearly so. Figure 36 represents a splice of its kind. The strands have been unlaid, married, and passed through with the assistance of a marling spike, over one strand and under the next, twice each way. The ends are then cut off close. To render the splice neater, the strands should have been half before turning them in a second time, the upper half of each strand only being turned in, then all are cut off smooth. Eye splice. Unlay the strands and place them upon the same rope spread at such a distance as to give the size of the eye. Enter the center strand, unlaid, under a strand of the rope, as above and the other two in a similar manner on their respective sides of the first, taper each end and pass them through again. If neatness is desired, reduce the ends and pass them through once more. Cut off smooth and serve the part disturbed tightly with suitable hard line. Uses too numerous to mention. Cut splice. Made in a similar manner to an eye splice, but of two pieces of rope, therefore with two splices, used for masthead pendants, jib guys, breast backstays, and even odd shrouds to keep the eyes of the rigging lower by one part. It is not so strong as to separate eyes. Horseshoe splice, made similar to the above, but one part much shorter than the other, or another piece of rope is spliced across an eye forming a horseshoe with two long legs. Used for back ropes on dolphin striker, back stays one on each side, and cutter surrounder pendants. Long splice. The strands must be unlaid about three times as much for a short splice and married, care being taken to preserve the lay or shape of each. Unlay one of the strands still further and follow up the vacant space with the corresponding strand of the other part fitting it firmly into the rope until only a few inches remain. Treat the other side in a similar manner. There will then appear two long strands in the centre and a long and short one on each side. The splice is practically divided into three distinct parts. At each, the strands are divided and the corresponding halves knotted and turned in twice. The half strand may, if desired, be still further reduced before the halves are turned in for the second time. This and all other splices should be well stretched and hammered into shape before the ends cut off. The long splice alone is adapted to running ropes. Shroud knot. Pass a stop at such distance from each end of the broken shroud as to afford sufficient length of strands. When it is unlaid, to form a single wall knot on each side after the parts have been married. It will then appear as represented in the figure, the strands having been well tarred and hoof taut separately. The part A provides the knot on the opposite side and the ends B, B, 
The part C provides the knot and the ends D, D. After the knot has been well stretched, the ends are tapered, laid smoothly between the strands of the shroud, and firmly served over. This knot is used when the shrouds or stays are broken. French Shroud Knot Marry the parts with a similar amount of end as before. Stop one set of strands taut up on the shroud to keep the parts together, and turn the ends back on their own part, forming bites. Make a single wall knot with the other three strands round the said bites and shroud. Haul the knot taut first and stretch the hole, then heave down the bites close. It will look like the ordinary shroud knot. It is very liable to slip. If the ends by which the wall knot is made after being hoofed will pass through the bites, it would make the knot stronger. The ends would be tapered and served. Felmish Eye Secure a spar or toggle twice the circumference of the rope intended to be roved through the eye. Unlay the rope which is to form the eye about three times its circumference, at which part place a strong whipping. Point the rope vertically under the eye and bind it taut up by the core if it is a four-stranded rope, otherwise by a few yarns. While doing so, arrange six or twelve pieces of spun yarn at equal distances on the wood and exactly half the number of yarns that have been unlaid. If it is a small rope, select two or three yarns from each side near the centre, cross them over the top at A, and half knot them tightly. So continue till all are expanded and drawn down tightly on the opposite side to that form which they came, being thoroughly intermixed. Tie the pieces of spun yarn which were placed under the eye tightly round various parts to keep the eye in shape when taken off the spar till they are replaced by the turns of marline hoof on as taut as possible the hitches forming a central line outside the eye. Heave on a good seizing of spun yarn close below the spar, and another between 6 and 12 inches below the first. It may then be parceled and served. The eye is served over twice, and well tarred each time. As large ropes are composed of so many yarns, a greater number must be knotted over the toggle each time. A 4-inch rope has 132 yarns, which would require 22 knottings of 6 each time. A 10-inch rope has 834 yarns. Therefore, if 10 were taken from each side every time, about twice that number of hitches will be required. Sometimes only half the yarns are hitched, the others being merely passed over. The chief use of these eyes has been to form the collars of stays, the whole stay in each case having to be roved through it, a very inconvenient device. It is almost superseded for that purpose by a leg spliced in the stay and lashing eyes above the mast, for which it is commonly used at present. This eye is not always called by the same name, but the weight of evidence is in favour of calling it a Flemish eye. Rope maker's eye, which also have alternative names, is formed by taking out of a rope one strand longer by six inches, or a foot than the required eye, then placing the ends of the two strands 
a similar distance below the disturbance of the one strand. That is, at the size of the eye, the single strand is led back through the vacant space it left till it arrives at the neck of the eye, with a similar length of spare end to the other two strands. They are all seized together, scraped, tapered, marred, and served. The principal merit is neatness. Mouse on the stay Formed by turns of coarse spun yarn hoof taut round the stay, over parceling at the requisite distance from the eye to form the collar. Assistance is given by a padding of short yarns distributed equally around the rope, which, after being firmly secured, especially at which is to be under part, are turned back over the first layer and seized down again, thus making a shoulder. Sometimes it is formed with parceling only. In either case, it is finished by marling, followed by serving or grafting. The use is to prevent the Flemish eye in the end of the stay from slipping up any further. Rolling Hitch Two round turns are taken around a spar or large rope in the direction in which it is to be hauled, and one half hitch on the other side of the hauling part. This is very useful, as it can be put on and off quickly. Round Seizing So named when the rope it secures does not cross another, and there are three sets of turns. The size of the seizing line is about one-sixth nominal, that of the ropes to be secured, but varies according to the number of turns to be taken. An eye is spliced in the line and the end roved through it, embracing both parts. If either part is to be spread open, commence furthest from the part. Place tarred canvas under the seizing. Pass the line round as many times with much slack as it is intended to have under turns, and pass the end back through them all and through the eye. Secure the eye from rendering round by the ends of its splice. Heave the turns on with a marling spike, perhaps seven or nine. Haul the end through taut and commence again the riding turns in the hollows of the first. If the end is not taken back through the eye, but pushed up between the last two turns, as it is sometimes recommended, the riders must be passed the opposite way in order to follow the direction of the under turns, which are always one more in the number than the riders. When the riders are complete, the end is forced between the last lower turns and two cross turns are taken. The end coming out where it went down, when the wall knot is made from the strands and the ends cut close, or the end may be taken once round the shroud. Throat Seizing Two ropes or parts of ropes are laid on each other parallel and receive a seizing similar to that shown in figure 35, that is, with upper and riding, but no cross turns. As the two parts of rope are intended to turn up at right angles to the direction in which they are secured, the seizing should be of stouter line and short, not exceeding seven lower and six riding turns. The end is better secured with a turn round the standing part, Used for turning in dead eyes and variously. Flat seizing. Commence similarly to the above, but it has neither riding nor cross turns. Racking seizings. 
A running eye having been spliced around one part of the rope, the line is passed entirely round the other part, crossed back around the first part, and so on for 10 to 20 turns. According to the expected strain, every turn being hove as tight as possible, after which round turns are passed to fill the spaces at the back of each rope. By taking the end A over both parts into the hollow at B, returning at C and going over to D. When it reaches E, a turn may be taken round that rope only, the end rove under it, and a half hitch taken, which will form a clove hitch not the end and cut it close. When the shrouds are wire, which is half the size of hemp, and the end turned up round a dead eye of any kind, wire seizings are preferable. It appears very undesirable to have wire rigging combined with plates or screws for setting it up, as in case of accident, such as that of the mast going over the side, a shot or collision breaking the ironwork, the seamen are powerless. Diamond knot. The rope must be unlaid as far as the center if the knot is required here, and the strands handled with great care to keep the lay in them. Three bites are turned up as in figure 42, and the end of A is taken over B and up the bite C. The end of B is taken over C and up through A. The end C is taken over A and through B. When hauled taut and the strands are laid up again, it will appear as in figure 43. Any number of knots may be made on the same rope. They are used on man ropes, the foot ropes on the jibum, and similar places where it is necessary to give a good hold for the hands or feet. Turks' heads are now generally used. Double diamond made by the ends of a single diamond following their own part till the knot is repeated, used at the upper end of a side rope as an ornamental stopper knot. Stropping blocks. There are various modes of securing blocks to ropes. The most simple is to splice an eye at the end of the rope a little longer than a block and pass a round seizing to keep it in place. Such is the case with the jib pendants. As a general rule, the parts of a shrub combined should possess greater strength than the parts of the fall which act against it. The shell of an ordinary block should be about three times the circumference of the rope, which is to reeve through it, as a 9-inch block for a 3-inch rope. But small ropes require larger blocks in proportion, as a 4-inch block for a 1-inch rope. When the work to be done is very important, the blocks are much bigger. Brace blocks are more than five times the nominal size of the brace. Leading blocks and sheaves in racks are generally smaller than the blocks through which the ropes pass further away, which appears to be a mistake, as more power is lost by friction. A clump block should be double the nominal size of the rope. A single strop may be made by joining the ends of a rope of sufficient length to go round the block and timber by a common short splice, which rests on the crown of the block, the opposite side end to the timber, and is stretched into place by a jigger. A strand is then passed twice round the space between the block and the timber, and hove tut by a Spanish windlass to cram the parts together, ready for the reception of a small round seizing.
The cramping or pinching into shape is sometimes done by machinery invented by a rigger in Portsmouth Dockyard. The strop may be made the required length by a long splice, but it will not possess any advantage. Groomed strop, made by unlaying a piece of rope of the desired size about a foot more than three times the length required for the strop. Place the centre of the rope round the block and timber. Mark with chalk where the parts cross, take one strand out of the rope, bring the two chalk marks together, and cross the strand in the lay on both sides, continuing round and round till the two ends meet the third time. They are then half and the upper halves half knotted and passed over and under the next strands, exactly as one part of a long splice. A piece of worn or well-stretched rope will better retain its shape, upon which success entirely depends. The object is neatness, and if three or multiples of three strops are to be made, it is economical. Double strop, made with one piece of rope, the splice being brought as usual to the crown of the block T, the bites fitting into scores some inches apart, converging to the upper part above which the timber receives the bites A, A, and the four parts of the shrop are secured at S, S, by a round seizing doubly crossed. If the block be not then on the right slew, the shell horizontal or vertical, a union timber is used with another shrop, which produces the desired effect. Thus the fore and main brace blocks, being very large and thin, are required for appearance to lie horizontally. A single strop round the yard vertically has a union timber between it and the double strop around the block. The double strop is used for large blocks. It gives more support to the shell than the single strop and admits of smaller rope being used. Wire rope is much used for block strops. The fitting is similar. Metal blocks are also used in fixed positions. Durability is their chief recommendation. Great care should be taken that they do not chafe the ropes which pass by them as well as those which reef through. Selvagi shrop. Twine, rope yarn, or rope is wrapped around two or more packs placed at a desired distance apart till it assumes the requisite size and strength. The two ends are then knotted or splitted. Temporary firm seizings are applied in several places to bind the parts together before the rope or twine is removed from the packs, after which it is marred with suitable material. A large shrop should be wrapped around four or six packs in order to give it the shape in which it is to be used. This description of shrop is much stronger and more supple than rope of similar size. Twine shrops covered with duck are used for bolts, blocks, and in similar places requiring neatness. Rope yarn and spun yarn shrops are used for attaching luff tackles to shrouds and for many similar purposes. To bring a shroud or hawser, the center of the shrop is passed round the rope and each part crossed three or four times before hooking the luff. A spun yarn stop above the center will prevent slipping and is very necessary with the wire rope. As an instance of a large selvagi block shrop being used, when the Melville was hove down at Chusan, China, the main purchase block was double shrop with a selvagi containing 28 parts of 3 inches rope, 
that would produce 112 parts in the neck, equal to a braking strain of 280 tons, which is more than 4 parts of a 9-inch cable. The estimated strain it bore was 80 tons. Stoppers for ordinary running ropes are made by splicing a piece of rope to a bolt or to a hook and timber, unlaying 3 or 4 feet, tapering it by cutting away some of the yarns and marling it down securely, with a good whipping also on the end. It is used by taking a half hitch round the rope which is to be hauled upon, dogging the end up in the lay and holding it by hand. The rope can come through it when hauled, but cannot go back. Whipping and pointing. The end of every working rope should at least be whipped to prevent it fragging out. In ships of war and yards, they are invariably pointed. Whipping is done by placing the end of a piece of twine or nittle stuff on a rope about an inch from the end, taking three or four turns taut over, working towards the end. The twine is then laid on the rope again lengthways contrary to the first, leaving a slack bite of twine and taut turns are repeatedly passed round the rope, over the first end and over the bite, till they are in all six to ten turns. Then, haul the bite taut through between the turns and cut it close. To point the rope, place a good whipping a few inches from the end according to size. Open out the end entirely, select all the outer yarns and twist them into nettles either singly or two or three together. Scrape down and taper the central part, marling it firmly. Turn every alternate nittle and secure the remainder down by a turn of twine or a smooth yarn hitch closed up, which acts as the weft in weaving. The nittles are then reversed and another turn of the weft taken, and this is continued till far enough to look well. At the last turn, the ends of the nittles, which are laid back, are led forward over and under the weft then hauled through tightly, making it present a circle of small bites, level with which the core is cut off smoothly. Horses and large ropes have a beaker formed in their ends during the process of pointing. A piece of 1 to 1.5 inch rope, about 1.5 to 2 feet long, is spliced into the core by each end while it is open. From 4 to 7 yarns, equal to a strand, are taken at a time and twisted up. Open the ends of the bucket, only sufficient to marry them and close in. Turn in the twisted yarns between the strands as splicings three times, and stop it above and below. Both ends are treated alike. When the pointing is completed, a loop a few inches in length will protrude from the end of the rope, which is very useful for reeving it. A hauling line or reeving line should only be rove through the bucket as a fair lead. Grafting is very similar to pointing and frequently done the whole length of a rope, as a side rope. Pieces of white line more than double the length of the rope, sufficient in number to encircle it, are made up in hangs called foxes. The center of each is made fast by twine and the weaving process, continued as in pointing. Block strops are sometimes so covered, but as it causes decay, a small wove mat which can be taken off occasionally is preferable. Sheepshank, formed by making a long bite in a top gallon backstay, 
or any rope which it is desirable to shorten, and taking a half hitch near each bend as at A, A. Rope yarn stops at B, B, are desired to keep it in place till the strain is brought on it. Wire rope cannot be so treated, and it is injurious to hemp rope that is large and stiff. Knotting yarns. This operation becomes necessary when a comparatively short piece of junk is to be made into spun yarn, or large rope into small, which is called twice laid. The end of each yarn is divided, rubbed, smooth, and married as for splicing. Two of the divided parts as C, C, and D, D are passed in opposite directions round all the other parts and knotted. The ends E and F remain passive. The figure is drawn open, but the forks of A and B should be pressed close together, the knot halt taut, and the ends cut off. Butt slings, made of 4-inch rope, each pair being 26 feet in length with an eye spliced in one end, through which the other is rove before being placed over one end of the cask. The rope is then passed around the opposite side of the cask and two half hitches made with the end, forming another running eye, both of which are beaten down taut as the tackle receives the weight. Slings for smaller casts requiring care should be of this description. True or smaller rope, as the cast cannot possibly slip out. Bale slings are made by splicing the ends of about 3 fathoms of 3-inch rope together, which then looks like a long strop, similar to the double strop presented in figure 45. The bites T being placed under the cast or bale and one of the bites A a rove through the other and attached to the whip or tackle. For a complete treatise on a subject, the reader may be referred to the Book of Knots, being a complete treatise on the art of cordage, illustrated by 172 diagrams, showing the manner of making every knot, tie, and splice by Tom Bowling, London, 1890. Mathematical Theory of Knots in the scientific sense, a knot is an endless physical line which cannot be deformed into a circle. A physical line is flexible and inextensible, and cannot be cut, so that no lap of it can be drawn through another. The founder of the theory of knots is undoubtedly Johann Benedict Listing, 1808-1882. In his Vorstudin zur Topologie, Grottenstudin, 1847, a work in many respects of startling originality, a few pages only are devoted to the subject. He treats knots from the elementary notion of twisting one physical line or thread round another, and shows that from the projection of a knot on a surface, we can thus obtain a notion of the relative situation of its coils. He distinguishes reduced from reducible forms, the number of crossings in the reduced knot being the smallest possible. The simplest form of reduced knot is of two species, as in figures 49 and 50. Listing points out that these are formed, the first by right-handed, the second by left-handed twisting. In fact, if three half-twists be given to a long strip of paper, and the ends be then pasted together, the two edges become one line, which is the knot in question. 
We may free it by slitting the paper along its middle line, and then we have a juggler's trick of putting a knot on an endless unknotted band. One of the above forms cannot be deformed into another. The one is, in Listing's language, the perversion of one another, i.e. its image in a plain mirror. He gives a method of symbolizing reduced knots, but shows that, in this method, the same knot may, in certain cases, be represented by different symbols. It is clear that the brief notice he published contains a mere sketch of his investigations. The most extensive dissertion on the properties of knots is that of Peter Guthrie Trade, Transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Volume 28, Number 145, where the substance of a number of papers in the proceedings of the same society is reproduced. It was for the most part written in ignorance of the work of listing, and was suggested by an inquiry concerning vortex atoms. Trade starts with the almost self-evident proposition that, if any plane closed surface have double points only, in passing continuously along the curve from one of these to the same again, an even number of double points has been passed through. Hence, the crossings may be taken alternatively over and under. On this he bases a scheme for the representation of knots of every kind and employs it to find all the distinct forms of knots which have, in their simplest projections, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 crossings only. The numbers are shown to be 1, 1, 2, 4, and 8. The unique knot of 3 crossings has been already given as drawn by listing. The unique knot of 4 crossings merits a few words because its properties led to a very singular conclusion. It can be deformed into any of the four forms, figures 51 and 52, and their perversions. Knots which can be deformed into their own perversion, trade cause amphishirial, from the Greek phi on both sides, around here, hand. And he has shown that there is at least one knot of this kind for every even number of crossings. He shows also that links, in which two endless physical lines are linked together, possess a similar property. And he then points out that there is a third mode of making a complex figure of endless physical lines, without either knotting or linking. This may be called lacing or locking. Its nature is obvious from figure 53, in which it will be seen that no one of the three lines is knotted no two are linked, and yet the three are inseparably fastened together. The rest of Trade's paper deals chiefly with numerous characteristics of knots, such as their knottiness, benottiness, and knotfulness. He also shows that any knot, however complex, can be fully represented by three closed plane curves, none of which has double points and no two of them intersect. It may be stated here that the notion of benottonous is founded on the remark of Gauss, who, in 1833, considered the problem of the number of interlinkings of two closed circuits, and expressed it by the electrodynamic measure of the work required to carry a single unit magnetic pole round one of the interlinked curves, while a unit electric current is kept circulating in the other. 
This original suggestion has been developed at considerable length by Otto Bodecker. This author treats also of the connection of roads with Riemann's surfaces. It is to be noticed that although every knot in which the crossings are alternatively over and under is irreductible, the converse is not generally true. This is obvious at once from figure 54, which is merely the tree-crossing knot with a double string, what Listing calls paradromic. Christian Felix Klein in the Mathematische Annalien 9, 478, has proved the remarkable proposition that knots cannot exist in the space of four dimensions. End of the entry for knots, Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, volume 15, slice 8. Authored by Peter Guthrie Trade. Recording by Freddy Pan. Events of the years 1801 and 1802. From Norfolk Annals, Volume 1, 1801-1850. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Norfolk Annals, Volume 1, 1801-1850. By Charles Mackey. 1801. January. January 1st. This day, Thursday, was observed as the first day of the 19th century. It was also the day upon which the Legislative Union of Great Britain and Ireland was effected. At Norwich, the 13th Regiment of Light Dragoons and the East Essex Militia fired a faux de joie in the marketplace, and the Union flag was displayed upon the Tower of St. Peter Mancroft. At Yarmouth, there was a ceremonial parade of the Durham Militia, and the vessels in the roads fired a royal salute and hoisted their new colors in honor of the Union. Rain fell heavily throughout the day. January 3rd. The Norwich Theatre was opened with the performance of The Last New Comedy, Life, and the Farce, Curiosity. The manager, Mr. Hines, delivered an address to a crowded and fashionable audience. The alterations in the house were executed after designs by Mr. William Wilkins, the patentee, and it was said to be one of the handsomest theatres in the provinces. January 5th. The Duke of Grafton's hounds unkenneled a fox at Fakenham Wood near Euston, and after a chase of upwards of fifty miles in four hours five minutes, killed him at New Buckingham. January 27th. A match for ten guineas, two miles, was trotted on the turnpike road between Setch and Lynn, between Mr. Robeson's pony Filch and Mr. Scarf's pony Fiddler, which was won with great ease by the former he having trotted over the ground at the rate of 18 miles an hour. Great scarcity prevailed throughout this month. About 1,500 pounds was subscribed for supplying the poor of Norwich with soup, and upwards of 247,000 quarts were distributed. At Norwich, market wheat was quoted at the beginning of the month at 146 shillings per quarter, and rose at the end to 180 shillings barley 84 shillings and oats 50 shillings various expedients were adopted to lessen the consumption of bread 
the officers of the west norfolk militia it was stated have entirely left off the use of bread at their mess and have forbid the use of puddings and pies except the crust is made of rice or potatoes which they eat in a variety of shapes as a substitute for bread nurses were advised to use linseed meal and water instead of bread and milk in making poultices february february ninth died at postwick aged twenty one edward west who had served as midshipman under lord nelson at the battle of the nile and accompanied captain sir edward bury in the foudroyant in the action with the guillaume tell he received a most severe wound which occasioned a decline february eleventh a general fast was observed in norwich february fourteenth it is much to be regretted that although many large manufactures of hempen cloth are established in norwich all the spinning of the hemp is done in suffolk and a sufficient quantity is with difficulty obtained from thence it is suggested to establish a spinning school for children under the patronage of benevolent ladies february seventeenth a company was formed at norwich for the erection of a public mill to be worked by steam for supplying the bakers and inhabitants with flour a capital of twelve thousand five hundred pounds was raised in transferable shares of twenty five pounds and the mill was erected upon a site near blackfriars bridge february twenty fourth mr charles harvey steward of norwich elected recorder in place of mr henry partridge resigned february twenty eighth the price of wheat at norwich market was one hundred and sixty eight shillings per quarter march march sixth the anacreontic society which for many years has been established in norwich and to which the cause of music owes so much closed its winter session the honourable mr woodhouse sir william jerningham sir richard beddingfield and captain sir edward berry were present the society gave monthly concerts in the assembly room from october to march in the advertisement announcing the commencement of the next session it was stated that the first concert would begin precisely at six supper rooms open at nine and the president to quit the chair at twelve o'clock march seventh arrived in yarmouth roads the st george of ninety-eight guns bearing the flag of lord nelson the grand fleet of forty-seven ships of war with three thousand marines sailed on the twelfth under the command of admiral sir hyde parker in the london of ninety-eight guns with nelson as his vice-admiral the fleet first rendezvoused in leith roods where it was joined by seven sail of the line and afterwards proceeded to copenhagen march tenth a mob assembled at lynn and grossly assaulted several millers and farmers by throwing at them stones and dirt in the evening they broke the windows in the dining-room of the duke's head inn one of the ringleaders was taken to jail and by the active exertions of the rutland militia tranquillity was restored without bloodshed march eleventh mr kett butcher of norwich undertook to ride his horse fifty miles in four hours he started from st stephen's gates at twelve o'clock reached the twenty-fifth milestone on the thetford road in about two and a half hours and returned to the place whence he had set out one and a half minutes before the time allowed six to four was laid that the horse did not perform the journey march fourteenth 
Advertisement. The Yarmouth and Norwich Mail Coach will set out from the King's Head Marketplace, Norwich, and the Star Tavern, Key, Yarmouth, every day at 12 o'clock. March 16th. The Invincible of 74 guns, built in 1766, Rear Admiral Toddy, on her way to join the Grand Fleet, got on the ridge near Happisburg Sand and remained there till daybreak next morning when she floated off. On entering deep water, she went down immediately with several officers and 300 men. Daniel Gregson, master of the Nancy Codsmack, saved seven officers and about 190 of the crew. At a court-martial held at Sheerness on March 31st on Admiral Toddy and the surviving officers and crew, it was proved that the disaster occurred through the ignorance of the pilot, and a verdict of honorable acquittal was returned. March 19th. At the Norfolk Assizes, held at Thetford before Mr. Justice Gross, the action The King versus Augustus Beaver Clerk was tried. The information was filed against the defendant by leave of the Court of King's Bench for sending a challenge to Major Edward Payne in consequence of a dispute that had taken place between the Major and the defendant's father. Defendant, referring to this dispute, wrote to Major Payne demanding an apology or he should be under the necessity of compelling it by a mode generally used among gentlemen. No notice was taken of the letter and the defendant, meeting Major Payne in the marketplace at Norwich, told him publicly that the contempt he had for his character protected his person. The defendant was found guilty, and at the next term of the Court of King's Bench, May 7th, was sentenced to three weeks' imprisonment in the King's Bench prison, and ordered to enter into his own recognizances of 500 pounds, to find two sureties of 250 pounds each, and to be of good behavior for three years. March 20th. The remains of Miss Sophia Goddard of the Theatre Royal Norwich were interred at St. Peter Mancroft. Mr. Hines, the manager, and the principal actors attended on the melancholy occasion. This young lady had obtained considerable reputation on the Norwich boards and was making rapid advance to eminence in her profession, when death prematurely deprived the theatrical world of an actress whose talents would have ensured her success on any stage. She supported with great fortitude and resignation a long and painful illness brought on by exertions that her constitution was unequal to, and died on Sunday last, March 15th, in her 26th year, sincerely beloved and lamented by her family and friends. Wheat this month rose to 180 shillings per quarter. April. April 3rd. Died at the Cavalry Barracks, Norwich Lieutenant Robert Scully, whose remains were interred on Sunday, April 4th, with military honors at St. Peter Mancroft. April 4th. Died at Cambridge, Mrs. Lloyd, widow of Dean Lloyd, aged 79. Her performances in needlework were so exquisitely wrought that they may justly be compared with the paintings of the most celebrated artists. The transfiguration and other figures represented in the eastern windows of Norwich Cathedral have displayed the superior skill of her personal attainments. Mousehold Heath, Norwich, was enclosed and cultivated. Plots of land were afterwards let at 25 shillings per acre. John Allen, 23, and John Day, 26, 
for burglary at the house of the Reverend Isaac Horsley at North Walsham, Richard Grafton for stealing a cow and three heifers, and James Chettleberg, 36, for stealing six sheep at Saxlingham, were executed at Thetford. Day confessed to having committed four burglaries previous to that for which he suffered, and to having deserted thirteen times from different regiments. In consequence of objections being made to the elections of Messrs. Staff and Proctor in the Weimar Ward, and of Messrs. Britton and Scott in the Northern Ward, Norwich, on the ground of their being ineligible, under the Corporation Act, having omitted to receive the sacrament within the year previous to the election of Common Council. The mayor did not make the returns till several days after the usual time. At a court held on this day, the recorder, Mr. Harvey, after the objections had been fully argued by counsel, declared that the persons objected to, who had the majority of votes, having omitted to come into court according to summons, were not duly elected. But as no regular notice had been given previous to the election, the candidates in the minority could not be returned. On May 2nd, a rule was moved for in the Court of King's Bench to show cause why a mandamus should not be directed to the mayor of Norwich to admit Mr. George Weimer into the office of common councilman of the city. Similar motions were made on behalf of Messrs. Bacon, Cook, Fisk, and Webster, the other defeated candidates. Lord Kenyon desired counsel to take rule to show cause, and to serve the rule not only on the mayor, but also on those persons who were elected in fact, but not de jure. On May 13th, Lord Kenyon confirmed the decision of the recorder that neither the candidates who had the majority of votes, from their not having taken the sacrament, nor those in the minority, were duly elected. Another election for the wards took place on May 25th and 26th. April 11th. Advertisement. To be seen alive in a genteel room at Mr. Peck's Coffee House, Church Style, Marketplace, Norwich. The largest rattlesnake ever seen in England, 42 years old, near 9 feet long, in full health and vigor. He is well secured, so that ladies and gentlemen may view him without the least danger. He has not taken any sustenance for the last eleven months. Admittance, ladies and gentlemen, one shilling. Working people and children, sixpence. April 14th. Intelligence received at Yarmouth of the destruction of the Danish fleet in Copenhagen Bay by the British fleet under the immediate command of Lord Nelson on April 2nd after a battle of four hours. Seventeen sail of the Danish navy were taken or destroyed. The news was conveyed to Norwich by the coach, which entered the city with colors flying. The volunteer corps paraded in the marketplace and fired a feu de joie, and the bells of St. Peter Mancroft and of other churches were rung. April 18th. By the latest returns of the secret committee, the county of Norfolk is reported amongst the most loyal counties in the kingdom. April 20th. A performance took place at the Theatre Royal Norwich towards raising a fund for the benefit of those who through age or infirmity are obliged to retire from the stage. April 23rd. Died at Norwich, Mr. John Bonesell, aged 75 years, an eminent leather cutter who for upwards of 20 years lived an abstemious life 
refraining from animal food and fermented liquors. He rendered himself very conspicuous in the religious world, as he professed opinions in a great measure peculiar to himself, which bordered upon fanaticism. He wrote several religious controversial pamphlets, as The Ram's Horn, etc. April 25th. Comparative returns of the population of Norwich, as taken in 1801, 1786, 1752, and 1693, were published. In 1801, the population was 36,832. In 1786, 40,051. In 1752, 36,169. In 1693, 28,881. The decrease of the population of this city since 1786 is 3,219, but it is to be observed that 1786 was a year of peace, and that in the returns of 1801, those serving in the navy, army, and militia are not included. Norwich, during the present war, has furnished at least 4,000 recruits for the army and navy, and these will account for the decrease, and also for the great excess of females, which appears by the returns to be above one-fourth. Of the present population, 408 are chiefly employed in agriculture, and 12,267 in trade, manufactures, and handicrafts. May. May 1st. There being again this year no alderman below the chair who had served the office of sheriff, the following aldermen were put in nomination for the office of mayor. James Crow, Sir Roger Carrison, John Morse, and Jeremiah Ives, Jr. At the close, the numbers were Ives, 668, Crow, 638, Carrison, 375, Morse, 37. At a court of mayorality, held on Sunday, May 3rd, it was ruled that Mr. Crow was ineligible, in consequence of having served the office three years previously to the date of the election. Sir Roger Carrison, who stood next on the poll, retired in favor of Mr. Ives, who was thereupon declared elected, and was duly sworn on June 16th. May 9th. Died at Easton House, Sir Lambert Blackwell, baronet, aged 69. The title, conveyed on his grandfather in 1718, became extinct. He bequeathed all his estates with his valuable paintings, books, coins, etc., to Mr. William Foster, Jr. of Norwich subject to certain annuities. May 16th. A reduction of from 15 shillings to 20 shillings per quarter in the price of bread corn was announced. There was also a decrease in the price of live cattle of all kinds. A sixpenny standard wheaten loaf, which about six weeks ago weighed only one pound, four ounces, six drams, now weighs two pounds, ten ounces, six drams. May 23rd. Another capital prize in the lottery has come down to Norwich. The whole ticket, number 24,350, a prize of £15,000 in the July Irish Lottery, is the sole property of Charles Weston, Esquire, banker and brewer of this city. The ticket was purchased 12 months ago, and not being registered, the fortunate holder remained unconscious of his wealth until last week, when, on examining the public lists, he discovered that his ticket was a prize of the amount above stated. 
June. June 2nd. Mr. Henry Harmer elected Speaker of the Common Council of Norwich. In place of his father, Mr. Samuel Harmer, who held the office upwards of 20 years. June 4th. The King's birthday was celebrated at Norwich with great demonstrations of joy. The corporation attended service at the cathedral, the Loyal Military Association, and the several parochial associations paraded in the marketplace and fired a feu de joie, and the members of the Norwich Light Horse, after a like ceremony, dined at the Maid's Head. Major Pattison's corps adjourned to Nietzsche's Gardens, Captain Blake's corps to the Rose Inn, St. Augustine's, and the other corps to different taverns. The mayor gave a dinner to the aldermen. June 8th, a quartermaster of the 13th Light Dragoons rode a certain distance up Thorpe Road in a given time with his face to the horse's tail, and afterwards up the sand hill near Kett's Castle in the same position, and won both wagers. June 18th. The body of William Suffolk, who was executed in March 1797 for the murder of Mary Beck of North Walsham, was taken down by authority of the magistrates and interred on the spot where the gibbet was erected. About ten days back, a starling's nest, with young ones, was taken out of the breast of Watson, who hangs on a gibbet on Bradenham Common, near Swaffham, for the murder of his wife, which was witnessed by hundreds of people as something very singular and extraordinary. June 20th. The ensign of the Généraux, having been presented to the city by Captain Sir Edward Berry, the corporation caused it to be displayed in St. Andrew's Hall, Norwich, with a suitable inscription. June 22nd. Holcomb sheep-shearing commenced and lasted until the 26th. Among those present were the Duke of Bedford, the Duke of Manchester, and other distinguished visitors. The new implements exhibited included a machine for drilling turnips, invented by the Reverend T.C. Munnings. It was described as nothing more than a perforated tin box affixed to and vertical with the axis of a wheelbarrow. A thrashing machine was much approved of. At this meeting, Mr. Koch announced his intention to give premiums for promoting the improvement of livestock and for encouraging experimental husbandry. June 25th. A fire broke out on the roof of Norwich Cathedral and occasioned damage to the amount of 500 pounds. Bishop Manners Sutton personally distributed refreshments to the soldiers and others who assisted in extinguishing the flames. About 45 feet of the roof were destroyed. The fire originated from the carelessness of plumbers at work upon the building. June 27th. At the ordinary visitation of the clergy and general confirmation held during this month, Bishop Manners Sutton confirmed at Newmarket 1,150 persons of both sexes, at Bury St. Edmunds 4,500, at Stowmarket 1,150, at Ipswich 1,300, at Woodbridge 1,150, at Framlingham 960, at Beckles 660, and at Norwich 1,100. June 29th. Vice Admiral Lord Nelson arrived at Yarmouth in the Kite Sloop, Captain Domet, from Copenhagen. He immediately proceeded on foot from the jetty to the hospital and visited the sick and wounded seamen. 
After a stay of about three hours, his lordship left Yarmouth for London under escort of a troop of yeomanry cavalry. The price of wheat at the end of this month fell to 120 shillings per quarter. July July 11th. The duty on port wine expected at Lynn alone will, it is said, amount to £80,000. The postmasters general have permitted the mail coach to be established from Lynn to unite with that from Norwich and Yarmouth at Barton Mills. July 17th. Roxham Regatta took place. The novelty of a sailing match attracted a great deal of company. It was won by the Union, the property of the Reverend Mr. Preston. July 18th. The population of Norfolk was returned as 274,221, of whom 130,249 were males and 143,972 females. July 28th. At a general meeting of the deputy lieutenants and magistrates, presided over by the Lord Lieutenant, the Marquis Townsend, it was resolved to adopt measures for the effectual defense of the county and the preservation of property. August. August 1st. At the Norfolk Assizes, held at Thetford before Lord Chief Baron MacDonald, was tried the action Stracy v. Davy. The plaintiff was Lord of the Manor of Rackheath, and the defendant a tenant of Mr. John Morse, Jr. The action, which was for trespass, was brought for the purpose of ascertaining certain rights set up by the defendant. Davy sought to establish the privilege of sheep walk over that part of Mousehold Heath then belonging to the parish of Rackheath. He claimed severally the right of feeding 500, 400, and 300 sheep, and also the right of depasturing his sheep, Levant and Couchant, and in various other modes. The special jury found a verdict for the defendant, and confirmed his right of feeding 500 sheep at six score to the hundred. August 3rd, the annual venison feast was held at the Red Lion, Fakenham, to celebrate Lord Nelson's victory at the Nile. August 4th, the Norwich Parochial Volunteer Associations assembled at St. Andrew's Hall, and afterwards marched to the marketplace, where Captain William Herring, the commanding officer for the day, read a letter from the Lord Lieutenant, requesting the men to be prepared in case of invasion. This day, from five in the morning till ten at night, heavy cannonading was distinctly heard by the Reverend Mr. Burton and several of his parishioners at Horsford, which was at the time supposed to be the cannonading from Lord Nelson's fleet before Boulogne. August 15th, Henry Lawn, aged 41, executed on the Castle Hill, Norwich, for horse-stealing. He denied to the last that he was guilty. He left a wife and six children. He would have enjoyed a considerable property, which the present possessor has entailed upon his children. August 24th. The supplementary militia was re-embodied. During this month, meetings were held in different parishes in city and county to discuss the means to be adopted in case of invasion. The clergy in country parishes took account of the live and dead stock that could be removed and of the number of wagons and carts to be made use of. The drilling of yeomanry and volunteer corps became general. September. September 20th. Died at Brompton, Sir John Gresham, baronet, the last male heir of the family. September 26th. 
a person residing in this city has within the last week been convicted in penalties amounting to one hundred and sixty six pounds ten shillings for having laid a leaden pipe from his dwelling-house to communicate with the pipes belonging to the proprietors of the waterworks without having obtained their consent or paid the accustomed water rent the amount was paid to the company's solicitor who immediately returned the money except thirty guineas which he has paid to the norfolk and norwich hospital for the benefit of that institution the portraits of lord nelson by sir william beechey and of mr john herring mayor of norwich in seventeen ninety nine by opie were this month placed in st andrew's hall october october first intelligence was received at yarmouth from constantinople of the surrender of alexandria to the british and turkish armies under general hutchinson and the grand vizier october third the intelligence reached norwich that the preliminaries of peace had been signed in paris there were great rejoicings on the tenth on the ratification of the news the horses of the mail coach by which the intelligence was brought to the city were so terrified by the demonstration that they became unmanageable the coach was overturned and the coachman the guard and some of the passengers injured october fifth at yarmouth during the peace illuminations a mob broke the windows of several houses occupied by quakers the ringleaders were committed for trial at the sessions october seventh at the norfolk county sessions elizabeth manship of ormsby was indicted for committing an outrage upon the rev eli morgan price when in the act of officiating at divine service at the parish church it appeared that while mr price was reading a new form of thanksgiving for the late plentiful season the defendant rushed out of her pew and snatched the paper out of his hands to the very great disturbance and alarm of the congregation the jury found the defendant guilty and she was sentenced to pay a fine of twenty pounds october twenty first a general illumination took place in norwich in celebration of the peace there was a grand display of transparencies and a huge bonfire was lighted in the market-place around which the mayor and corporation paraded the celebration was general throughout the county october twenty fourth in the spring of this year the palace workhouse norwich contained one thousand and seventeen paupers they are now reduced to four hundred and twenty five a smaller number than has been known for the past twenty years the reduction in the other workhouse has been nearly proportionate november november second the prince of orange arrived at yarmouth from london and on the sixth sailed in the diana packet for cuxhaven november thirteenth peter donahue a sergeant in the thirtieth regiment of foot was executed at lynn for uttering counterfeit bank of england notes we are sorry to add that he appeared sensible for many minutes after he was turned off and a large effusion of blood gushed from his mouth and nose which rendered the scene most awful terrible and distressing november twentieth prince william frederick of gloucester arrived at the house of mr j pattison at norwich and in the afternoon stood sponsor for mr pattison's youngest son who was christened at st stephen's church by the name of william frederick the prince afterwards went to houghton where lord chumley gave a grand fete in honour of the peace on his return to norwich on november twenty fifth his royal highness attended a ball and supper 
given by Mrs. Charles Manor Sutton at the Bishop's Palace. November 21st. The coursing meeting at Swaffham last week was numerously and respectably attended. The silver cup was won by Mr. Denton's bitch Nettle, which beat Mr. Tyson's bitch. The assembly was brilliantly and numerously attended. December. December 5th. It was announced that the Duke of Norfolk intended to pull down the old palace, now used as a workhouse, and employ the premises for some beneficial and ornamental purpose. December 16th. The old hall at Stratton Strawless, belonging to Mr. Robert Marsham, was destroyed by fire. The family had removed a few weeks before into the new hall. December 26th. A serious affray occurred at Horsford between two excise officers, assisted by two privates of the 3rd Dragoon Guards and 30 smugglers. The officers had seized a large quantity of smuggled goods at Coston, and the smugglers succeeded in retaking only a small part. One of the soldiers was shot. Several of the smugglers were desperately wounded, and two died of their wounds. Advertisement the Lord Nelson new light coach from London to Lynn in 14 hours through Cambridge and Ely, agreeable to the wishes of the Vice-Chancellor and several members of the University, the proprietors mean to relinquish travelling on the Sunday. The coach will leave the Golden Cross, Charing Cross, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings at half-past five, arrive at Cambridge at one, and Lynn at eight in the evening. The coach will return from the Globe Inn Lynn on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday mornings. The coach carries four inside. Advertisement. The Lord Nelson coach from London to Fakenham. The coach leaves the Crown Fakenham on Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Sups at Cambridge and arrives in London about seven in the morning. From the Golden Cross, same days at six in the evening. Prices of corn at the end of the year. Wheat, 70 shillings to 76 shillings. Rye, 36 shillings. Barley, 40 shillings to 42 shillings per quarter. Oats, 20 shillings to 24 shillings. Malt, 32 shillings per coon. Best flour, 3 pounds, 1 shilling, 8 and a quarter pence per sack. Coals, 40 shillings, 4 pence per children. 1802. January. January 2nd. Mr. W. E. Bulwer of Hayden has resolved to divide all his farms into 200 acres as they come out of lease. They are worthy the attention of industrious men wanting situations. January 4th. The Duke of Bedford, Lord Paget, and Lord John Thine, with four other gentlemen, on a visit to Lord Chumley at Hewton, had the greatest day's sport ever known in Norfolk. They killed altogether 165 hares, 42 pheasants, 5 rabbits, 2 woodcock, and 2 partridges, and this notwithstanding that the woods had been beat five times this season. January 9th. A reduction of 3 shillings, 6 pence in the pound poor rates announced. The malt was fixed at 7 shillings in the pound. For the last 30 years, there have not been so few paupers in the two workhouses principally owing to the manufacturers of Norwich having such large orders to execute that hands are actually wanted. The non-commissioned officers and privates of the Blowfield and South Walsham Troop of Yeomanry Cavalry offered to continue their services to the government, 
and thanked the officers for the unremitting and polite attention paid to them since the establishment in 1794. Other troops of yeomanry in the county made similar offers. January 13th. Died lately at Bristol Hot Wells, where she'd gone for the recovery of her health, the Countess of Leicester. Died last week, Mr. William Websdale. This venerable man lived in three centuries and expired at the advanced age of 102 years. The following coach advertisements were published on this date. Royal Lynn Mail Coach sets out daily from the Duke's Head Inn, Lynn, by way of Brandon, Barton Mills, Newmarket, Burnbridge, and Epping, to the White Horse in Fetter Lane, whence it returns every day at three o'clock. The Fakenham and Swaffham Light Post Coach sets out daily from the Red Lion in Fakenham at two o'clock and returns from London as above. The Lord Nelson Coach from Lynn to Norwich in seven hours from the Globe, Lynn, to the King's Head, Norwich, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, returning Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at 7 o'clock in the morning. The Lynn and Norwich machine, from the Crown Tavern, Lynn, to the White Swan, Norwich, runs three times a week, insides 12 shillings, outsides 7 shillings. January 14th. Mr. William Earl Bulwer installed Provincial Grand Master of Freemasons at the White Swan, St. Peter Mancroft, Norwich. January 15th, the thermometer very near to zero, 32 degrees below freezing point. January 16th, a fine gray eagle was taken alive in a trap upon the estate of Lord Montrath at Weeding. It measured from the extremity of each wing seven feet, eight inches, and from the beak to the tail, nearly four feet. February. February 15th. The Norwich Court of Guardians considered the question of the erection of a new workhouse. The average number of poor maintained in the two workhouses during the previous 18 years had been 1,282. It was recommended that one building be erected to accommodate 1,300, the money to be borrowed on shares of 100 pounds each bearing interest, and to be paid off by lot, so that the whole debt, with interest thereon, would be discharged in twenty years. A bill was brought before Parliament and received the royal assent on May 24th, and a site for the building was purchased near the opening to Chapel Field. On December 7th, in consequence of observations made by Mr. Alderman Rigby on the subject of outdoor relief, the question was deferred until the committee had informed the court whether these allowances may not be so extended without any diminution of the comforts of the poor, so as to render unnecessary the building of such a workhouse as has hitherto been proposed. The scheme for the erection of the workhouse was ultimately abandoned. February 21st. Died Mr. Henry Skipper Dyer, St. Peter Hungate, Norwich. He was in his time a famous pugilist and fought several pitched battles with Alger, Henry, and others. March. March 16th. Died at his house in Greville Street, Hatton Garden, London, in the 28th year of his age, Thomas Archibald Mary, M.D., one of the physicians of the public dispensary in Carey Street, and of the House of Recovery for Infectious Diseases, an institution which, in a great measure, owed its establishment to Dr. Mary's exertions. He was the youngest son of Dr. John Mary, 
founder of the Scots Society in Norwich, who died September 26, 1792. March 20th. Died lately at Strawberry Hill, near Collumpton, Devonshire, aged 78, the Earl of Montrath of Weeding Hall. The earldom is extinct. His lordship left a legacy of £2,000 to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. His invariable dread of smallpox occasioned his lordship to lead absolutely the life of a recluse. His terror was so great that he had five houses between his seat at Weeding and his house in Devonshire to prevent the chance of infection, and at these houses small establishments were kept up, as he dared not sleep in an inn. March 24th. At the Norfolk Assizes, held at Thetford, the grand jury made a presentment to the effect that as hay and corn were considerably reduced in price, publicans and posting masters might, without injury to themselves, decrease their charges. It was resolved that those publicans and posting masters who have already reduced their charges are deserving approbation and encouragement. In an advertisement published on April 24th, the postmasters stated that from the heavy duties imposed upon carriages, the first expense of chases and their repair, the increased price of horses and of smith's work, they could not, without great injury to themselves and their families, make any abatement in the charge of fifteen pence, which included the payment of a duty of three pence per mile, they having been considerable losers during the previous two years. March 27th died at Melton Constable, Sir Edward Astley, Baronet, who represented Norfolk in four successive parliaments. He was succeeded in the title and estates by Sir J. H. Astley, his only surviving son by his first wife, the eldest sister of John Lord Delabau of Seton Delabau, Northumberland. March 30th. News was received of the definite treaty of peace having been signed at Amiens, on March 27th, by the Marquis Cornwallis and Bonaparte, the Norwich Loyal Military Associations assembled at St. Andrew's Hall. Instead of field pieces and ammunition wagons, the martial divisions were preceded in their march from the hall to the marketplace by two brewer's drays laden with six barrels of Norwich porter, which were drunk with much joy. April. April 10th. Advertisement to seafaring men a double call to be sold for price and particulars inquire of the printers within the last three months nearly three hundred paupers have been discharged from the two workhouses which at the present time do not contain more than five hundred and fifty persons the smallest number ever remembered the next poor rate in consequence will not exceed four shillings three pence in the pound in norwich it appears from the returns of assessment of income that Norfolk and Norwich last year contributed one hundred and eleven thousand five hundred and thirteen pounds seventeen shillings one pence, of which sum eighteen thousand eight hundred and one pounds zero shillings three and a quarter pence was paid by persons possessing incomes under two hundred pounds a year, and ninety two thousand seven hundred and twelve pounds sixteen shillings nine and three quarter pence by persons of superior income. April 17th. Advertisement. Bear baiting. Henry Gerard respectfully informs the public that there will be a bear baiting in a meadow belonging to the Ferry Farmhouse, Great Yarmouth, on Monday next, the 19th instant, in the afternoon. Admission one shilling, six pence to be returned in liquor. 
The baiting was prevented by the action of the county justices. William Dunnett for horse-stealing and John Saunders for stealing a cow were executed at Thetford. April 24th. The East and West Regiments of Norfolk Militia disembodied at Yarmouth and Deerham. The several Corps of Yeomanry Cavalry and Volunteer Infantry, on being disbanded, were thanked by the government for their services. The whole of the French and Dutch prisoners confined in Yaxley Barracks were last week put on board different vessels in Lynn Harbor, from whence they proceeded to their respective countries. April 26th, died at Bath, age 78, the Reverend Edmund Nelson, father of Lord Nelson. He was rector of Burnham Thorpe, to which he was presented in 1755 by Lord Walpole. April 27th, to commemorate the opening of the new organ built by the celebrated Mr. England of London, the oratorio The Messiah was performed at St. George Colgate Church, Norwich, which was lighted up and matted for the occasion. The organ was opened by Mr. Beckwith, who also conducted the band. Three shillings was charged for admission to the church. May. May 3rd. The Corporation of Norwich voted an address to His Majesty the King on the acquisition of peace. The address was presented to His Majesty at a levy at St. James Palace on May 21st by Mr. Jeremiah Ives, Jr., Mayor, Sir Roger Carrison, Mayor-elect, and Mr. William Foster, Jr. May 4th. Peace was proclaimed by the mayor and corporation, who went in procession through the streets of Norwich. Major Patterson's Corps of Volunteers and the several parochial military associations, after firing volleys in the marketplace, marched to the residence of the mayor-elect, where they deposited their muskets and regimental colors. Officers and men afterwards repaired to Nietzsche's gardens, where they dined. In the evening, there was a general illumination. The day was similarly observed at Yarmouth. May 10th. A fete was held in Refley Wood near Lynn. A fine Norfolk sheep was roasted for the feast, presided over by Sir Martin Folks. May 13th. Died, age 85, Mrs. Beaton, of St. John Mattermarket, Norwich. She was a native of Wales and commonly called here the Freemason, from the circumstance of her having contrived to conceal herself one evening in the wainscoting of the lodge-room, where she learnt that secret, the knowledge of which thousands of her sex in vain attempted to arrive at. She was a very singular old woman, and, as a proof of it, the secret died with her. May 14th. A heavy fall of snow, which in many places lay more than an inch thick upon the ground. On the 15th there was a severe frost, and snow fell for two hours. At Langley and other places, it was between three and four inches in depth. May 22nd. Between one and two o'clock in the morning, the dwelling house of the Reverend Mr. Sykes of Guestwick was burglariously entered by two men. They presented themselves at Mr. and Mrs. Sykes' bedside. Their faces were blackened, and one of them had on a slip of linen, and the other a woman's checked bedgown. They each had a cudgel and a candle in their hands. They said, We have pistols, your money or your lives. One of them remained by the bedside while the other plundered the drawers. Then they departed, carrying away some money and a watch. May 24th. The Duke of Cambridge sailed from Yarmouth in the Amphion frigate for Hanover, of which kingdom he was appointed regent. May 24th. 
died, aged 90, Mrs. Anne Fuller of Raveningham. Her remains were interred at the parish of Toff Monks. The pall was supported by six grandchildren, and the funeral attended by children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren in her own lineal descent to the number of 47. May 29th. At a county meeting, an address to His Majesty on the Peace was moved by the Honorable Colonel Woodhouse, seconded by the Honorable Colonel Harbord, and unanimously adopted. The address was presented to the King by Mr. Robert Wilson, High Sheriff. May 31st. A fire occurred at Swanton Paper Mill, a great part of which was destroyed with all the paper. The damage was estimated at 4,000 pounds. June. June 1st. This day was ordered to be observed as one of general thanksgiving for the restoration of peace. The mayor and corporation of Norwich attended the cathedral, and the appointed service was performed at all parish churches. At Lynn, the inhabitants, instead of having an illumination, collected 300 pounds, which was distributed amongst the poor. June 21st. Holcomb sheep shearing commenced. A new thrashing machine was exhibited. An improved drill for turnip sowing was also shown. From the same barrel, seed and oil cake manure are delivered into one tube, through which it is deposited in the earth by the same cultures. June 22nd, Guild Day at Norwich. The mayor, Sir Roger Carrison, went to the cathedral in a most elegant new chariot, the color of royal blue. The coachman and the three footmen behind had handsome new liveries, with gold-laced cocked hats and gold-headed canes. His worship wore a full-dress coat and embroidered waistcoat. At the Guild Feast in St. Andrew's Hall, 800 guests were present, and at the ball given in the evening at Chapel Fieldhouse, Mr. T. A. Carrison and Miss Chad opened the dancing for the 450 guests. June 26th. Advertisement. On Wednesday, the 30th instant, a main of cocks will be fought at Elsham between the gentlemen of Suffolk and the gentlemen of Norfolk for ten guineas a battle and twenty the odd. Feeder for Suffolk, Nathaniel Rowan. Ditto for Norfolk, Henry Seaman. July. July 2nd. Dibden gave his entertainment, Sans Souci, at the Theatre Royal Norwich. The performance was repeated on the succeeding evening. July 5th. Parliament having been dissolved on June 29th, the election of members for the City of Norwich took place on this day. The candidates were the Right Honorable William Wyndham of Felbrigg and Mr. John Frere of Royden, Mr. Robert Fellows of Shottisham, and Mr. William Smith. At the close of the poll, the numbers were Fellows 1,532, Smith 1,439, Wyndham 1,356, Frere, 1,328. There was great rioting. The chairing took place on the day following the declaration of the poll. July 12th. After the lapse of 34 years, a contested election took place for the County of Norfolk. The poll opened on the 12th and continued for eight days. The result was declared as follows. Mr. Thomas William Coke, 4,317. Sir Jacob Henry Astley, 3,612. The Honorable Colonel Woodhouse, 3,517. A scrutiny was demanded by the friends of the latter and granted. It commenced on July 30th and continued until August 28th, 
when Colonel Woodhouse's counsel retired from the case, and Mr. J. H. Astley and Mr. Coke were declared duly elected. The expenses of the contest were estimated at £35,000, and the amount spent by the successful candidates to bring distant voters to the poll was enormous. Mr. John Hookham Frere of Royden was this month appointed envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to the Court of Madrid. August. August 12th. This year's anniversary service at the cathedral, in aid of the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, realized 165 pounds, three shillings, four and three quarter pence. With the proceeds of the dinner at the Maid's Head Inn, the total amount handed to the institution was 204 pounds, 17 shillings, eight and three quarter pence. August 14th. We hear from Brussels that a party of gentlemen from Lynn have reached that city in the Hebb pleasure yacht. This being the first vessel that ever displayed the British flag in Brussels, the quay of the port has been crowded with spectators looking at her. August 17th. A duel was fought on Mousehold Heath, Norwich, by Mr. Robert Alderson, a well-known barrister, and Mr. Grigsby. The latter conceived that he had been unfairly treated in cross-examination by Mr. Alderson at the Suffolk Assizes, and, refusing to accept his explanation, sent him a challenge. Mr. Alderson was attended to the field by Mr. McIntosh and Mr. Grigby by Mr. Turner. Two shots were exchanged with no effect than that of Mr. Grigby's first ball passing through the skirts of Mr. Alderson's coat. A cordial reconciliation was afterwards effected. August 28th, William Ricks was executed on Castle Hill, Norwich, for sheep-stealing. September September 5th, the organ of the Octagon Chapel, Norwich, was opened by Mr. Beckwith. The instrument was built by Crotch. October October 4th, a grand musical festival was held in Norwich under the direction of Messrs. Beckwith and Sharp and Mr. Ashley of London. Mrs. Billington, Mr. Bartleman, and Mr. Bram were the principal artistes. The last performance was given on the 7th. October 8th, the Princess of Wales concluded a visit to the Marquis and Marchioness Townshend at Raynham and returned to Blackheath. October 13th, Mr. Alderman Francis Columbine resigned his seat. Owing to his pecuniary distress, the Corporation of Norwich granted to him and his daughter an annuity of £100. October 14th. Races were held at Blickling Park. Lady Caroline Harbert gave a ball and supper, attended by upwards of 100 guests from Aylsham and the neighborhood. October 18th. Three gentlemen, for a considerable wager, undertook to walk blindfolded from Post Office Court to the great doors of St. Peter Mancroft Church, Norwich, in 15 minutes. Two of them performed it in less than the given time, much to the satisfaction of the spectators. But the other unfortunate gentleman bent his course rapidly for the upper market, and found himself at the expiration of the time at the great doors of St. Andrew's Hall. October 21st. Mr. Edward Rigby was elected alderman of the Great Northern Ward in room of Mr. Francis Columbine after a severe contest lasting two days. His opponent was Mr. Jonathan Davy. October 23rd. Died at Vienna, aged 80, General Jerningham, nephew of Sir George Jerningham, baronet of Costasi. 
He was upwards of fifty years in the imperial service and was chamberlain to the Empress Maria Theresa and to the Emperors Joseph, Leopold, and Francis. November. November 8th. Swaffham coursing meeting commenced. November 25th. Mr. Welby of Blickling undertook for a bet of fifty guineas to ride his mare ninety miles on the Alsham Road in ten hours, all paces. She performed the first eighty miles in eight hours, twenty-five minutes, and had an hour and thirty-five minutes to run the last ten miles, but was unable to accomplish it, to the great disappointment of those who bet three and four to one that the mare performed the journey. End of Events of the Years 1801 and 1802 from Norfolk Annals, 1801-1850, Volume 1, by Charles Mackey. Recording by Colleen McMahon.